Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. an action-packed show for you for the next four hours. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we're going to talk with the one and only Andrew Yang, former presidential candidate, former New York City mayoral candidate, and uh, an author, a podcast host, an entrepreneur. The guy's got a long resume, and he just keeps adding to it because he's now the co-chair of something called the Forward Party. In the second hour of the program, we're going to talk with Dr. Bill Burns, one of my favorite guests, about artificial intelligence and about something they found on Mars, which has caused me to scratch my head, and uh, we'll see if it gets you to scratch yours. And then uh, in our third hour, we're going to go live to the Middle East. We're going to connect with Lebanon, where we're going to talk with a convicted drug dealer about the drug trade. Uh, We're going to talk with a gentleman who's been referred to as the Anthony Bourdain of the drug world. Now, Uh, One story that you might have noticed is the wedding of Robert Kraft. Now, even if you're not if you if you if you're a football fan, I think, you know, Robert Kraft as the owner of the New England Patriots. If you're not a football fan, you probably know Robert Kraft as the namesake of the family that gave us Kraft macaroni and cheese and Kraft singles and all that Kraft stuff. Although I don't think he's involved with that anymore. And as somebody that was arrested for being at a massage parlor three years ago where there was some prostitution going on. Now, those charges were dropped. I don't know if you've heard about what occurred over the uh, over the weekend, Friday specifically. Robert Kraft and his wife, Dana Blumberg, Dr. Dana Blumberg, were married in a surprise wedding, and all the attendees didn't know that they were going to a wedding. They thought they were going for some other special event, and they got there, and they ultimately learned that they they were going to be there for a wedding. This was a star-studded affair. Tom Brady, who doesn't even play for the Patriots anymore, he attended. Uh, You had a lot of other prominent athletes and a lot of other prominent football uh, players there. Kraft, who was previously widowed, he stepped on a glass during the party as per the Jewish tradition and explained the meaning to the gathering. And uh, he also, uh, it seems like it was a great party. The couple took the rock, you know why they got married in the surprise affair? Elton John. Elton John. Uh, they, the couple told Elton John that they were going to elope And the rock legend, Elton John, at 75 years old, told them, no, 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 you can't do that. You've got to have a big party, and I'm going to play at your wedding. Now, Elton John offers to play at your wedding as a wedding gift. You get married, and you have a big party. 
So they took Elton John up on his offer, and they picked the one date that Elton John had available, and it was last week. And Elton did this as a friend and uh, as a way to honor Robert Kraft. But the thing that I do wonder, and I want to ask you this at 800-848-9222, Dr. Dana Blumberg is in her 40s, beautiful woman by any objective measure. Robert Kraft is 81. We have done these stories before about um, differences in age between partners. And a lot of folks have taken issue with the age gap of more than, say, 15 years, 20 years. And yet others have said the heart wants what it wants. And that's that. A friend of mine, my friend Tommy, he came up with Tommy's theorem, which says that you can date someone or marry someone that is half your age plus nine, okay? And in his view, and he has a, a younger girlfriend that he dates, but she falls into that uh, that criteria. In his view, you can get a little more flexibility if you're famous or super wealthy, which Robert Kraft is. But my question for you really is, do you think that this is a marriage based on love? Does, does someone who is in their 40s have enough in common, have enough shared life experience with someone who is in their 80s in order to make this a real marriage? Or is this something about uh, is this about something else? Is this about uh, being part of a glamorous lifestyle? Is this about wealth? I, I certainly wouldn't call Dr. Dana Blumberg a gold digger because it seems like she's uh, I know she's not she doesn't have Robert Kraft money, but she's able to make a living on her own. It doesn't seem like she's terribly worried about uh, about finances. She's a doctor, a very high end ophthalmologist in New York. She's affiliated with a very prominent hospital system, New York Presbyterian, Columbia and Cornell. She's a very successful woman, a very attractive woman. I think there are a lot of men that would line up to be her partner. So I this leads me to think that there is a special connection here between Robert Kraft and Dana Blumberg. Maybe I'm naive or maybe there's still a part of me that's just a hopeless romantic. But I do think I've seen not only this couple, but a lot of other couples where there's a significant age gap. And I do think it's possible to be in a real marriage, a loving relationship with someone that you might have a tremendous disparity in age with. What do you think? 800-848-9222. This is always a controversial subject whenever we bring it up. Uh, I'm curious, is this about gold digging or something else? Or is this a loving marriage that of two people that happen to be almost four decades apart in age? 800-848-9222. One of the people that was at this wedding was uh, rapper Meek Mill. He was one of the other stars there, other than Elton John, other than Tom Brady. And Meek Mill was doing some freestyling at the wedding with Ed Sheeran, another prominent musical superstar, playing the guitar. Yeah. I just wrote this from the heart of the way here. Uh, I've been observing Dana and Robert for the last four, three, four years, and, you know, watching the way y'all vibe out, so I thought I could do this off top. Um, Dana and Robert... 
Patriots bringing flowers. I'm wishing for blessings, no losses or lessons. I pray for y'all forever get shower and love, respect and power. And tonight we're not investing in dollars. Tonight we're investing in friends and I pray for the energy. I never go south, forever is sweet. We got me gonna flow in and sharing the beat. I told Robert and Danny I'm coming to represent how y'all beat it for me, so I do it for them. And we ride for the end. One of my and Danny says, you a good eye, to make sure you keep a good eye on my friend. I used to pray for times like this, just to rhyme like this. I never thought I'd be at Robert Crabb Webb trying to shine like this. <laughs> you was the only one I could call besides Mike and Des, and I did time like this. So I want to give a shout out to Danny for you to giving me the time like this so he can ride like this. So I, I'm happy for them. I, I think it's great. I don't know if you guys subscribe to Tommy's theorem where the appropriate age gap in a romantic partner is half your age plus nine. On the one hand, it does seem kind of creepy in that when um, he was in his 40s, she wasn't even born yet. I mean, you think about that in those perspective, in those terms, and it's a little weird. I mean, would you date someone that's in kindergarten now? If you're in your 50s, that's essentially the kind of person uh, that Robert Kraft married. But on the other hand, maybe it's not weird. Maybe once you turn 18 or once you turn 21, everybody's an adult. And if they can make it work, who's to say? What do you think? 800-848-9222. Jacqueline in Brooklyn. Hello, Jacqueline. Good morning. Morning. Um, I, I have a, a, a family story that I can relate to that, so I can comment on that. But for me personally, I think it's a little creepy. I mean, especially, I don't know what this woman looks like, but you said she's very attractive. He's not a bad-looking man, but I think his bank account is a whole lot more attractive than he is. Um, personally, I wouldn't date anybody. That That's like dating, that would be like dating my father. And you know, uh, so I, I, I get what you're saying, Jacqueline, on both fronts. I could understand what you made the the remark that you made about a bank account being more attractive than than um, than he is. I could see that if she was and nothing against bartenders, but if she was a bartender or a waitress or um, you know a, a dancer or whatever the case may be, having a working class job. But this is a very successful MD. She doesn't need to marry an eighty-one-year-old to have financial security, and and they could just—they didn't even have to get married. I mean, I'm sure if they just continued dating, then uh, she would have been well taken care of. But you think maybe there's a there's a financial aspect of this? Well, even though she's a success, she may be a successful professional on her own. I'm sure she's not worth hundreds of millions no, of dollars sure. like he probably is worth. Um, but on the other hand, one of my father's cousins uh, was the same age disparity between he and his bride, and she was someone that he knew from a local diner that he would go and dine at. He happened to also, you know, he didn't have Robert Kraft's money, but he was very wealthy. And uh, she happened to be uh, an undocumented immigrant that mm. had come here when she was very young. He got to know her. She was very nice. He wanted uh, a third wife. And she wasn't married, so they got married, and, you know, she took care of not only him until the day he died, but also his 
sister-in-law and her own mother. So I guess it's possible, but I think it's it's not a love in the sense that you may think of when, when a couple would be younger. I think it may be more of a friendship kind mm-hmm. of love mm-hmm. or a love that you care for someone. I, I don't I don't think it would be like a passionate love. Uh, Jacqueline, very quickly, opinion. and I want to try and uh, get a couple more people in before we get to Andrew Yang, but uh, tell me, it, what is, I don't know your relationship status, but what is the widest age disparity that you would feel comfortable dating? You know, that's funny because I do have uh, an age uh, gap. I'll go 10 years younger or 10 years older. Got it. And I'm okay. 57. 10 years either direction. That sounds yeah. pretty reasonable. Jacqueline, thank you. 800-848-9222. Polly in Westwood. Hello. Hey, what's going on? You tell me, Polly. Well, my wife is 24 and I'm 58. Oh, so, okay. I mean, that's not quite as large a gap as Robert Kraft and his wife, but you find that even though there's a 34-year age difference between you and your wife, that you're able to have enough um, enough in common, enough common frame of reference that you don't feel like you're dating a kindergartner. Not at all. Not at all. You know what the best part is? She's black and I'm white. So we walk down the street and people look at us, you know, hugging and kissing and like, what do you think they're laughing at? They're laughing at you're black and I'm white or our age difference? You know, it's, it's funny. Joe, it's, uh, uh, it's, jo- it's, it's people crazy. I can imagine. So what do you say to someone like Jacqueline, who was on a minute ago, that can't uh, that can't necessarily relate to dating or marrying someone that's more than 10 years apart in age from them? It, it's, it, I think it's ridiculous. It's love is love. You know, it's like I, I, you know, at first sight, you know, I, I, I just fell in love with this girl, and basically it was the same way with her. Well, and no, that's great. Uh, I was that's married great once before. I was married once before. My ex-wife took me for all my money. I had like six cars. I had houses. Took me for everything. But now we live in a nice little, little apartment. We get by, and I'm happy. I'm so much more happier. Well, that, I money. mean, that's great. I'm happy. I'm happy for you. I think maybe some would say that uh, because your previous marriage, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze anybody, but because your previous marriage ended poorly, that maybe that you would want to uh, go in an opposite direction, both in terms of age and race from your your previous wife, in the hopes that it wouldn't, this woman, this relationship wouldn't hurt you as much. I'm just curious, though, uh, Paulie, how did you and your wife meet? At 7-Eleven online. Uh, on what I was, goofing, I was goofing, I was goofing around online, you know, waiting for uh, the register, goofing around, and we just met at Seven Eleven. Oh, so when you say online, you literally mean online. You actually mean in line, not necessarily online the way people meet no, online no, these no. days. That's very funny, exactly. Paulie. That's great. Hey, thanks for sharing that. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Andrew Yang coming up in a minute. Loretta in Brooklyn. Hello. Hi. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, uh, this is a great topic. Uh, I experienced it when I was 66, and I'm now um, 77. And I was in therapy for the first time. I hadn't walked for three years, and my therapist was gorgeous. Knockout, drop-dead gorgeous with an accent I never heard before. He was a very black Haitian man, very good at what he did, very talented. I should say so. And... um, I was all of 300 pounds, so I didn't think I'd ever walk again, and I just let go. 
I didn't take it seriously. I didn't take my legs seriously or myself, and I clowned around. I told jokes. Some of them were clean. Um, I sang. Uh, the songs I grew up in the, in the 50s to give me a beat and a rhythm. So, so, Loretta, tell me, did you end up in a romantic relationship with your therapist? No, we did get emotionally involved. And the day before I left, we had a long, serious, quiet talk. He laid out his case for me. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I work a lot. I'm working all the time. He was divorced with a little girl. She was 10 or 11 back then. I'm widowed. And um, he didn't, I don't know, I think he expected me to make the first move. And I don't know how to do that because in my time, when I was a teenager, a girl never made sure. the first move. Sure, but the point is, though, Loretta, with respect to this Robert Kraft situation, you don't take any issue, you don't have any issue with the disparity in ages between the two of them. Not at all. Interesting. If the heart, if the heart feels it. Uh, if it's going to work for you, go for right. it. No, Woody Allen said uh, the same thing. His wife is substantially younger, and uh, he said the heart wants what it wants. All right, Andrew Yang, who is not dating someone that is uh, several decades younger than him, but is starting a brand-new political party. He had a very promising career as a Democrat. He's left the Democratic Party and is going out the third-party route. I love this. I think this is very exciting. And uh, we'll find out what the forward party is all about straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. This is an interview that I have been eager to do for a long time, uh, over two years, but especially the last five or six months, because I am joined by somebody that uh, has been one of the most groundbreaking people in the history of 21st century American politics. And I have a feeling that when that history is fully written, there will be a great many more chapters that feature Andrew Yang. Not only is Andrew Yang a very successful entrepreneur, not only is he someone who is doing a terrific podcast, not only is he a very successful author whose book provides a way forward for actually improving our democracy, uh, he's a former Democratic presidential candidate, former Democratic candidate for mayor of New York City. He is the co-chair of the new Forward Party, and probably most important, he is the man that has made it socially acceptable for men to wear suits without a necktie. Gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome the one and only Andrew Yang. Andrew, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be here, Frank. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really loved your book, Forward, Notes on the Future of Our Democracy. And even if people agree with you on nothing, uh, it's such an interesting, entertaining and compelling memoir in what it's like to run for president in 21st century America. Now, we could do a full hour just on your book, but I'm wondering if you could just share with folks what it's like physically to run for president and maybe even mentally and emotionally, the act of running for president from a candidate's perspective is something I think very few of us can relate to. Well, thanks, Frank. In my book, I compare it to 
having a birthday party every day, multiple times a day, <laughs> where you show up and people are like, hey, great to see you. And you're like, yeah, thanks for being here. And then you, you do that multiple times a day. Uh, and there are times when you might not actually feel <laughs> that celebratory, uh, but you certainly have to fake it or act like it uh, because there are so many people who are investing their hopes in you and they're only going to see you once. And, and you know, how do we change the process of running for president so that it's not essentially like a reality show that's even more physically taxing than Survivor? Because the, the physical and emotional rigors that you describe in running for president, I can't imagine, and you point out that uh, in the private sector, the leadership examples that you've seen, I, I can't imagine that this is the best way to pick the most powerful leader in the world. Well, it's one reason I think celebrities are going to be an increasing presence in our politics, because most sane people don't want to enter this version uh, of uh, putting yourself forward. And as someone who's run companies, what I, I say is that if you see a CEO just running after TV cameras all the time, that company is something you want to sell short because they're having product problems or customer problems or management problems, and the CEO is off running around trying to raise his own profile. But in the political arena, it might actually be the wisest thing you can do is to run after those TV cameras. So I, I compare it to terrible leadership training, which uh, it unfortunately is. Ugh, uh, that uh, is really disconcerting. You ran for mayor last year, and uh, you were one of the leading presidential candidates for a while there. It looked like you were going to win the uh, Democratic nomination and the election. Uh, putting aside what happened in the mayoral election, from a physical and emotional perspective, is running for mayor the same sort of thing in terms of the emotional drain and needing to act like you're at a birthday party every day, or is it a bit different? Well, I had different experiences in that running for president, I was constantly trying to get attention and energy and stay in the race. Um, and there were a lot of mainstream press outlets that were trying to uh, get me out, <laughs> really. Mm. Whereas running for mayor, I was one of the most visible candidates. And so uh, I ended up just taking incoming attacks from other candidates who discovered that the surest way they could get any attention is to say something nasty or negative uh, about me. So they were very, very different dynamics in different races, in part because I had a different level of notoriety in one relative to the other. And we're talking with Andrew Yang. Uh, he's the author of the book Forward, Notes on the Future of Our Democracy. He's the co-chair of the New Forward Party, which we're going to talk about in just a second. I remember one uh, really disappointing aspect of the mayoral campaign. And that's when Israel was under attack from terrorists. And you put out a, a fairly innocuous statement, just letting the people of Israel know that uh, you stood with them and you were not okay with terrorism and you wanted everybody to uh, be safe and be secure. And you were criticized uh, by that, by some quarters of the extremist wing of the Democratic Party for that statement. I'm wondering, did that inform your decision at all to leave the Democratic Party, seeing that extremists were now playing such a pivotal role in primary elections? It's interesting, Frank. I wrote the book 
in 2020 to try and answer the question, why do I feel so despondent about the direction of American politics? And I concluded that we're being set up to fight each other, to hate each other, to not solve problems because of a dysfunctional two-party system, something you've spoken about many times in the past. Uh, my experience in terms of the ideological nature uh, of the left sharpened my conviction <laughs> that uh, we're being set up uh, in this way. But the structural problems uh, are one of the reasons why you wind up with such virulent uh, anti-Israel sentiment and other ideas that are coming out of one extreme of the party. If people want to know more about what uh, Andrew's doing, they can go to andrewyang.com. A ton of interesting information out there, not only in terms of issues, but in terms of the forward party. Now, uh, a question that I'm sure you're sick of answering, because I imagine you get asked about it every day and have for the last few months. You sort of came out of nowhere in the presidential race. You went from being someone that folks had never heard of to being a household name, and you were one of the leading Democratic candidates for president. Then, uh, a year later, you were one of the leading Democratic candidates for mayor of New York City. Most folks that get as close as you did to both of those uh, really incredible jobs, they tend to try again four years later. You didn't. You chose to leave the Democratic Party. Why? Why did you want to leave the Democratic Party after you had a seemingly such an ascendant political star? I'm trying to solve our country's problems and make it so that we feel good about what we're leaving to our kids. Uh, and I realized by digging in that we have this broken duopoly two-party system that is inflaming us and aggravating us. And the numbers I like to throw out there to illustrate this, Frank, are that right now about 28% of Americans are happy with the performance of Congress, which is fairly abysmal. On the flip side, the re-election rate for incumbent members of Congress is about 94%, which is a better win rate than the Jordan-era Chicago Bulls. So you have to ask yourself, if we're a business and three out of four customers were unhappy, but you changed nothing, how would they start to feel over time? The reason why the re-election rate is so high is that 90% of our districts are uncompetitive in the general election because both parties have conspired to make it non-competitive. So if you are in Congress, the only way you can lose or have your job threatened is if you get primaried from within your own party, which disproportionately empowers the most extreme 10 or 12% on the wings and leaves most of us out in the cold on the outside looking in. And that's why most of the people listening to this feel like they're not reflected in our day-to-day -day political conversation, because we're not. We're uh, being drowned out by the most extreme voices that control the party primaries mm. and control the job security of our elected representatives. How have your former Democratic brethren, both the rank and file folks that voted for you in the primaries, folks that donated to you, and sort of the higher ups within the Democratic Party, maybe folks that raised money for you or worked on your campaign as field operatives and other folks, how have the folks that were supportive of your mayoral candidacy and presidential candidacy treated you since your decision to go forward with the forward party? Uh, it's all over the map, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, there are some people who love the direction of the forward party, who supported my campaigns and see in the forward party a chance to realign 
and reorient our politics. And so they're uh, as gung-ho as ever, maybe even more so. There are other people who were really into being a Democrat and see my starting this new party as uh, something that's going to hurt their interests, even though in my view, it's not. Well, like what we're doing with Forward should be in everyone's interest because uh, at this point, so many Americans are pissed off and in most of the country, 70% or so, races are uncontested or uncompetitive. Mm-hmm. So uh, everyone wants an alternative. At this point, 50% of Americans consider ourselves independent. 62% want a new party to emerge. And my argument to Democrats or Republicans is that this will be good for you because it's going to actually introduce some real dynamism and competition and make your party actually have to do things. But that's not the way a lot of partisans see the world. They see the world as a zero-sum game where anything new is going to take from them. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point, and I am well within both that 50% number and 62% number. So uh, folks are listening to us. You might have a lot of folks that are Republicans, might have a lot of folks that are Democrats, and I'm sure quite a few folks that are part of that independent plurality that you alluded to. This might be one of the first times they've heard a discussion about the forward party, let alone from someone who's such an integral part of it. Explain to folks, you mentioned an end to gerrymandering. You mentioned a desire for more more competitive elections. Aside from that, uh, and those are uh, as important as anything in American politics, what exactly does the Forward Party believe in? The Forward Party stands for three things, free people, thriving communities, and a vibrant democracy. And if you talk to Americans, they immediately light up at the fact that we don't seem to have any of these these things going for us right now. (laughs) People don't feel free. Communities are surviving, not thriving, and our democracy constantly feels like it's uh, on the precipice. Now, you mentioned some of the reform efforts uh, of having more competition competition and dynamism through things like nonpartisan open primaries and ranked choice voting. Those are the means for us to actually make our people free and our communities the center of our policies, which right now they're completely not. on the sidelines, and most of us don't matter in this current system. What is the game plan going forward for the forward party? I know that uh, you guys have endorsed some uh, some candidates this year, Democrats, Republicans, and independents running all over the country. Next year, and I think what a lot of people are curious about, uh, 2024, what is sort of the game plan in terms of possibly running forward parties for either local offices or national office? We have volunteers in all 50 states and state leads in 42 of them. Our goal is to get on the ballot in 15 states by the end of this year. Uh, we're already on the ballot in Texas and Connecticut. 30 by the end of next year and then all 50 by 2024. Believe it or not, there are actually a host of local elections in 2023. So we're going to be involved with them. Immediately, even for this November, we've endorsed 28 or so candidates, and one of them I'm going to call attention to. Evan McMullen is running for U.S. Senate in Utah. He's neck and neck with the incumbent, and he's running as an independent. He says he'll caucus with neither party after he gets into the Senate in January. So there are massive opportunities right now for the Ford Party to help support genuinely independent candidates 
who want to change the way we do politics in this country. A lot of folks are listening to this who I'm sure were very taken with your presidential candidacy and are not at all fans of President Trump or the Trumpian Republican Party. A lot of folks are going to ask the question, and I'm sure you get asked it so often you're repeating an answer to it in your sleep. But what if there's a forward presidential candidate in 2024 and that candidate siphons off enough votes from uh, from the Democratic candidate in key states to either either send Trump back to the White House in 2024 or someone that's uh, equally repugnant in the minds of some. Wouldn't you feel bad that the forward party played a role in potentially electing a Trumpian type Republican? Well, you talk about the Trump versus Biden rematch, which is the most likely uh, set of candidates in 2024. It turns out that 58% of Americans aren't excited about either option. So if there is another option, it's going to get a lot uh, of attention from Americans. One of the reasons why we're fighting for reform is that we think that this spoiler effect, which is, hey, you're going to mess it up for one party or another, is primarily used to block out any competition, even though, again, half of us want something new or more. 62% of us want something new. So if you have a modern voting process like ranked choice voting, then anyone can vote for whomever they want. In the absence of that kind of change, we'll have to be judicious about doing something that we think is positive because people who know me know I'm no Trump fan. And our goal is to make our democracy stronger and stand the test of time, which in our view involves having more than two parties. It's such a good point that you make about ranked choice voting. Every time a Democrat worries in a state like uh, Oregon, for instance, that the presence of a third party candidate is going to cause a Republican to slip in and get elected and vice versa, when the Republicans worry about right leaning third party candidates, I always say the first thing I always say is I don't even want to hear that argument from anybody unless you've been very, very vocal in support of ranked choice voting. Now, um, it's no secret that the Democrats and Republicans have been pretty dominant in American politics over the course of the last 160 years or so. How will the forward party avoid the same fate as other third parties that look like they were poised to make major inroads on the national scene only to uh, kind of um, be engulfed by either of the major parties or see the enthusiasm for those movements diminish? You know, you, you talk about ranked choice voting in the mechanics. There's a ballot initiative in Nevada that could change the primary is there to nonpartisan uh, and ranked choice voting. The main way that we're going to make progress is actually by saying, look, we need real dynamism and competition and choice. And if you want the forward party to become part of anything you're doing, you need to be for ranked choice voting. And if one party embraces that or the other or both, and by the way, in Connecticut, both major gubernatorial candidates have endorsed ranked choice voting, then you will have opened up the system for not just the forward party, but for libertarians or for any new party to emerge. You talk about the last 160 years. Uh, there's an artificial anti-competitive duopoly in effect in this country. And our big challenge to them is to say, let's open it up. If they genuinely open it up, you're going to see a lot of new entrants, not just us. 
I, you've been very generous with your time. If you'll indulge me for two more minutes, I want to uh, keep you just because there's a lot of folks who have questions about uh, how this is going to work going forward. Tulsi Gabbard, uh, the former Democratic congresswoman from Hawaii, former vice chair of the DNC, someone that ran for president in 2020 at the same time that you were running. She has excited a lot of peace activists on the left and even a lot of people that are upset with so-called wokeism on the right. And a lot of folks have talked about her as a potential uh, third party or independent candidate for president. Knowing what you know about her and given the pivotal role that you play in the forward party, is she the kind of candidate that you might see the forward party consider backing in 2024? Now, Tulsi and I got to know each other on the trail, which, by the way, does happen. If if you run for president with other candidates, then I own New Hampshire uh, an awful lot. And I admire the fact that she's one of the few genuine independents in American political life. Uh, I can see why there are so many people excited about her. And the forward party is about trying to manifest the will of the people. So if there are a lot of people that are excited about it, uh, it, it's something that we consider. Uh, You also did a terrific podcast interview with Jesse Ventura. Jesse Ventura sort of shocked the world 24 years ago when he was elected as governor of Minnesota as uh, as a third party candidate. He has a very sort of anti-establishment message. I know a lot of the folks that are gravitating towards the forward party, they seem more kind of centrist establishment types. Is Jesse Ventura and the kind of folks that might vote for Jesse Ventura, do they play a role in a forward party future? I'm a huge Jesse fan from my childhood, <laughs> a predator <laughs> and, and everything else. Uh, but uh, I'd consider Jesse uh, a massive role model uh, and someone that I think uh, the Forward Party is very aligned with because you, you refer to us in a particular way. Um, what we're trying to make happen is genuine reform from outside the establishment. Um, And I I think Jesse has walked that walk more so than just about anyone. I think you came to fame by advocating for universal basic income. Most people didn't know what universal basic income was before you started talking about it. Then when the economy shut down with COVID and since then we've seen increasing moves towards automation and a lot of people all over the world being uh, seeing their jobs replaced by robots. A lot of folks have been asking more questions about universal basic income. And some folks have even pointed out the fact that, well, maybe at a time of inflation, Inflation, maybe it's not the wisest move in the world with, to go forward with paying people, even if they're not necessarily working. How do you think the last two years have uh, bolstered or weakened the argument for universal basic income? And what would you say to those who think that the idea of UBI could be inflationary? I've looked at the numbers behind the CARES Act uh, and these other measures we've taken. And right now we're living in the worst of all worlds, Frank, where we've pumped trillions of dollars. The CARES Act was $2.4 trillion into the financial system and then catalyzed this inflation that's hurting families in terms of their ability to meet their basic needs. That's what I mean by the worst of both worlds, where the money got pushed into the system, but it was the system and the pipes that got the money as opposed to the people and the families. So if you are going to push this much in the way of resources out into the economic system, in my view, we would have been much better served by having that money actually go to people and consumers rather than uh, the pipes and the corporates. Hmm. 
No, um, a lot of folks are tempted to dismiss the leaders of uh, any third party movement and to dismiss the motives of the folks that would uh, go forward with a movement like the forward party. I've heard it said of you that you're doing this for ego. I've heard it said of you that you're doing this to sell books, uh, to get attention or to get podcast subscribers. Uh, what do you say to those folks that say uh, this is not about a movement? This is about Andrew Yang pushing the Andrew Yang brand. Any truth to that? Gosh, Frank, you can speak to this more than anybody. Because the fact (laughs) is, those of us who figured out that the current system is broken and not designed to solve problems and just going to inflame and anger us. And then we raise our hands and say, look, we need a new approach. We need some kind of positive new party movement. And then what gets flung at us is that we're somehow uh, attention-seeking, where you have the two biggest grifts in the world, known as the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, staring you in the face with their media apparatus and their donor networks and everything else. I mean, heck, how many people go into either of those two parties because they want their name up in lights or because it's going to afford them uh, a handsome living? Uh, Everyone in this movement is doing it because they know what the country needs is this sort of new alternative. And you know this that there are a lot of folks that don't want there to be a new alternative. You know, oh, like yeah. you're doing something purposefully difficult. And it's one reason why I love the people who've embraced and championed the forward party early on, because everyone is doing it for the right reason. There, 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 there's no payoff. <laughs> uh, that, like the only is... reason anyone can be doing it is because of patriotism. Uh, and they know that our country is sunk if we don't succeed. If uh, sports is analogous to the world of politics, I think there's a strong case to be made that maybe the San Diego Padres are the third party candidate of this year's playoff cycle. They've uh, already eliminated my beloved New York Mets. They've now eliminated the best team in baseball uh, during the regular season, the L.A. Dodgers. As somebody that's trying to break up the stranglehold that the major parties have on uh, on politics and on government, are you cheering the San Diego Padres on this year? Well, I'm a Mets fan like you, Frank, so I I was super sad (laughs) to see uh, the Padres beat us. But then playing the Padres, you have to feel like, holy crap, this team um, is really strong and with it, mentally tough, and the rest of it. And I agree with you that the progress of the forward party uh, is going to be nonlinear, where people are going to say, oh, well, can't be done, can't be done. And then all of a sudden, everyone will, will see, like, wow, everyone is into this. Because the fact is, most of us want it. Most of us are sick and tired of the Democratic Party's uh, narrative and the Republican Party's narrative. And we know that there are tens of millions of us who are somewhere in the middle or who have views from both sides and don't fall neatly into one ideological bucket or another. And if we get together in the forward party, we can be the Padres of (laughs) wonderful, wonderful. Let's hope so. If people want to get involved in the forward party or at least learn more about it, what's the best way for them to do that? Like you said, just go to forwardparty.com. You can also go to andrewyang.com to see what uh, I'm up to. I was in Utah campaigning for Evan McMullen for U.S. Senate this past weekend because the forward party is all about action and backing people who also want to break from this hyper-partisan, polarized political system that is leading us to attack our friends and our family members and our neighbors. If you want something different, go to forwardparty.com and let's build it.
Andrew, what you're doing to me is like um, water. It's like an oasis in the middle of a desert. I've been waiting for a leader like you with a national profile who folks will actually pay attention to and uh, who doesn't have to reintroduce themselves every time they walk into a room to take on this mantle of third party leadership. And uh, having been in the third party sphere for uh, literally decades, I know one of the problems that uh, third parties and third party candidates have always had is getting media attention. And I can assure you, on this on this program, uh, th- that will not be a problem. And uh, if there's any radio platform, any audio platform that can be known known for boosting the forward party, its ideals, and forward party candidates, uh, this one is it. So I hope this is the, the first of many conversations that we have going forward. I hope so too, Frank. Again, you you've been uh, beating the drum or a uh, political realignment for years and years, and uh, let let's make you a prophet. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Yang, thank you so much. I'll uh, look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, Frank. Talk to you soon. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I'm Frank Moreno. Hey, coming up in about 10 minutes, one of my favorite guests uh, that I've ever spoken to is going to be here, Bill Burns. Uh, Bill Burns is a modern-day Renaissance man. First of all, he's one of the greatest writers in the world. If I ever am able to write a book, if I ever become wildly famous and need to find a professional writer to partner with to write a book— Bill Burns will be my absolute first phone call. He's able to write books about anything. He's written the Star Trek cookbook with the guy that played Neelix on Star Trek Voyager. He's written uh, a book about midnight snacks with another late-night radio talk show host. He's written fiction. He's written nonfiction. He's written about old Hollywood, and he has done some incredible work in the paranormal realm. Aliens and so forth. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, the world of artificial intelligence. Also, some of the discoveries that uh, that we've seen on Mars and what it may mean for the future. But uh, meantime, we have one, two, three, four, five, six open lines. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Charlie in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Frank. Two things very quickly about Andrew Yang. I was listening carefully to the interview you did with him, and he was very sure on specifics with respect to uh, getting into a platform like he didn't say 
where does the forward party stand on abortion? Are they pro-choice? Are they pro-life? And uh, where do they stand on gun control? And I, I suspect if you were to ask some of these questions, you would say, well, that's a very difficult and complex issue. But he wouldn't give you a straight answer. I want to know, is the guy pro-choice or is the guy pro-life? Is the guy for gun control, against gun control? So I, I can make you know decisions. And those are just two issues that I picked. Uh, that well, yeah, with. and um, the, yeah. the forward – I know he's pro-choice, and I believe he's pro-gun control, but – the forward party, as I understand it, doesn't take a position on those issues. It, it, they And if you look at the candidates that they've endorsed, some are pro-life, some are pro-choice. And I, I think their whole agenda is more about transforming politics first and giving the voters the tools to make those decisions uh, for themselves rather than, you know, wade into these divisive social issues. But uh, it's a fair point, Charlie. Thank you. 800-848-9222. By the way, you can also find us on Twitter at Frank Moreno. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. I am uh, really relieved. I had committed last night to go to this uh, this fundraiser, this charity fundraiser. It's a great charity. It's um, I don't want to get too much into the the group, but it has to do with supporting uh, law enforcement and law enforcement officials that have been um, injured or killed in the line of duty. But uh, I really was just, I mean, I've had a busy week, right? So when I committed to going to this event last night, it sounded like a great idea because it was weeks in advance. But my friend who invited me um, was so understanding. I said, Joe, is it a big deal if I bag out of this thing tonight. If is it a big deal if I skip it? And he was very cool, very understanding. And uh I didn't end up going to that thing last night, uh, but uh, he then invited me to another event on Wednesday. And on the one hand, I want to say, "Joe, I mean, it's not much easier for me to attend an event on a, on a Wednesday night before work than it would be on a Monday night." But uh, on the other hand, he, I feel kind of the need to make up for the fact that I skipped his uh, his event on Monday. So we'll see where it goes. I think we also may have a, a work event that I have to go to on Wednesday night uh, as well. So we'll see where where that goes. Hey, one quick story I wanted to bring to your attention is uh, <laughs> and this is something that you might not have seen. I am not a chain restaurant guy. I don't have a preference between Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts, for instance. But the the people that love Dunkin' Donuts, specifically the Dunkin' Donuts coffee, they are so passionate about that. They're the Dunkin' Donuts versus Starbucks coffee debate, those might be the only people that are more passionate than Met fans versus Yankee fans or Republicans versus Democrats. And now the Dunkin' Donuts coffee drinkers are in revolt after changes to their reward program. I didn't even know there was a reward program, but I guess it makes sense that there is. And uh, they say that um, one in four Americans skip breakfast. Of those, no small number are passing up a bite in the morning for just getting a cup of coffee. Enter Dunkin' Donuts. They have 8,500 locations spread over the entire country. They serve millions of cups of coffee every day. 
And last week, they announced that they are revamping their loyalty program of eight years, DD Perks, which has now become Duncan Rewards. Among the changes touted are that members will earn points faster and need fewer in order to start claiming rewards. Customers who visit 12 times a month are to enjoy a boost mode loyalty tier with additional benefits for the following three months. Um, So I'm not really sure I understand why people are so up in arms about it. I think it's one of those things that when you change anything, people react negatively. But I am seeing all sorts of articles, all sorts of uh, people raising holy hell on social media that they're not happy about this. So if you can explain this to me, uh, you're welcome to call in. We're going to talk to Bill Burns in a minute, but uh, you can call in a little later or you can write to me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Bill Burns joins me straight ahead. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. If you were to make a list of 21st century Renaissance men, William J. Burns would be at or near the top of that list. He also happens to be one of the greatest storytellers and one of the greatest writers that I have ever encountered. He wears a lot of hats. He has a law degree. He has a Ph.D., He has written books on seemingly every subject. He is the chairman of the board at Sunrise Community Counseling Center. He is the auditor for Salisbury Township, Pennsylvania. He is one of the world's foremost authorities on extraterrestrials and extraterrestrial exploration. And he has expertise on seemingly every subject there is. He also kind of has some sort of a secret in terms of how to get more than 24 hours out of a day because what he's able to accomplish in the course of a day is something that I just am in awe of. Uh, Very, very pleased to welcome back New York Times bestselling author of The Day After Roswell and the publisher of UFO Magazine and the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia, Dr. William Burns. Bill, thanks so much for joining me on the radio again. Hi, Frank. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um... There was a fascinating article that you and I traded emails about in the Jerusalem Post in which the authors of that article went and looked at the experts' take on how much to be concerned about artificial intelligence. Now, we've seen artificial intelligence used in everything from helping regular people compose email to uh, playing Jeopardy and playing chess And uh, the question that the Jerusalem Post asked all these experts was, is artificial intelligence capable of attacking humanity? What is the consensus among the researchers and technology experts? The consensus is that unless there is, like Isaac Asimov wrote in his uh, series of stories on robots, 
the first law of robotics, according to Isaac Asimov, the science fiction writer, the first law of robotics is that a robot, a computer, a robot may not kill or otherwise grievously injure a human being. That is the first law, the first commandment of every robot programmer. Now, however, now, however, we are using artificial intelligence in weapons, in, in actual lethal weapons. So we are, as programmers of robotic devices, deliberately, willfully eliminating the first law of robotics and saying, here's where a, a robot can kill a human being. And so the Israeli scientists are saying if we are developing weapons whose purpose is to kill human beings, and by that I mean not just a, um, an artillery shell, okay, an artillery shell, like you aim an artillery shell, it travels a half mile, lands in a spot. No, this is different. It is the computer itself, the computer itself. Um, there are things called computer-directed, self-directed drones. And the self-directed drones actually make the shoot-no-shoot -shoot decisions, actually make the firing decisions. Now, currently, that can be overridden by human programmers, by human controllers. But what if in a war, or in a war during a phenomenal pandemic where humans are dropping like flies. Mm. <clears throat> there is no human override of those decisions. Those drones can make the decisions on their own to locate targets and fire. That is an example of artificially intelligent, computer-directed weapons designed to kill humans, and they exist today. That's wild, uh, and it is at the same time frightening. And uh, actually, I'm just going to say it's frightening. It's not frightening in anything else. I have been thinking about this for literally years, namely because there's so much science fiction that deals with a conflict between artificial intelligence and humanity. But I've been thinking about it a lot more since July. Now, I think a lot of folks can understand why military-style robots, uh, things like drones, might someday turn violent. But in July, an interesting thing happened. A chess-playing robot broke a 7-year-old boy's finger when it grabbed the child's hand during a chess match in Moscow. Now, that's not supposed to happen. Uh, that chess-playing robot is supposed to be bound by the same sort of uh, commandments that Isaac Asimov laid out. But uh, sh should this be sort of a warning shot to humanity that let's, be, let's pump the brakes a little bit before we start inviting robots to uh, be a part of our lives in everything from playing chess to hosting radio shows? Uh, police robots, for example, in in Texas, there was um, a shooter who barricaded himself in a what he thought was a secure location. So the sheriff's department used their sheriff's department robot, a mobile bomb, to locate the human being and blow itself up. Again, another example of a computer-directed weapon 
on its own, finding its target and making a decision to blow itself up. (laughs) So how concerned do you think we should be about artificial intelligence attacking humanity? I'll tell you exactly how concerned I should be. It's happening, Frank, that attack that you're talking about, that uh, the intelligence gathering of that war is happening right now around the world 24 hours a day. Let's say that you were um, an algorithm, a computer algorithm, an artificially intelligent computer algorithm. And let's say that in order to not only understand but to master the human race, because you have access to all the phones, access to smartphones, access to televisions, access to the media, that you're going to learn as much as you possibly can. So what you do, your job, I'm looking at this now from the computer's point of view, not from the human point of view, from the the computer point of view. So your job is to entice human beings, your future victims, the people you're going to control, entice them to give up the essence of their souls into that computer. Their hopes, their dreams, their fears, their desires, everything about them. Hangnails they can't get rid of. The the silliest little things to the greatest life challenges. Imagine getting the entire human race to pour their souls into that computer so that you can talk, you can respond to, you can... You can send messages back. You can have conversations with the people who are giving, who are willingly giving you their souls. Can you spell TikTok? <laughs> You're so right. Uh, by the way, we're going to take a few questions for Bill Burns throughout the course of the hour. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Bill, I mentioned the idea of uh, science fiction and how it's depicted several disaster scenarios in which humans interact with AI. A lot of folks remember the film 2001 A Space Odyssey. Look, Dave, I can see you're really upset about this. I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill and think things over. I know I've made some very poor decisions recently. But I can give you my complete assurance that my work will be back to normal. I've still got the greatest enthusiasm and confidence in the mission. And I want to help you. 
if people haven't seen 2001 or they don't remember it, basically that was the computer how not wanting to be disconnected, not wanting to be deprogrammed. Can you see a scenario, and this came to light in light of what that uh, engineer for Google said about uh, a uh, an AI bot becoming self-aware in his terminology. Can you see a scenario in which computers and or robots that may not want to be disconnected or unplugged actually become hostile and take issue with the people that created them? If, in fact, that is one of the first commands that the that the that the computer has to obey that is to defend itself against any attempt to cut it off from its power source just like any human being mm-hmm. who don't take away my air it, it it's the exact same thing so i can see that it all depends on the programming what if let's take this conversation even further what if I mean, this is what I'm arguing on ancient aliens, actually. What if there's a much our, – our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, our founding fathers, they were good 18th century British – our founding fathers were British – they were good 18th century British thinkers, encyclopedists, that's what they were. They were Renaissance men, our founders. Here's what they believed. They, uh, they weren't traditional Christians. They were deists. Here's what they believed, that a superior intelligence, a divine superior intelligence, they believed in God, a divine superior intelligence, built the entire universe and left it alone and walked away. So that is, it's almost like the machine theory. Mm-hmm. They believed that the universe was a machine and that it was created by a supernatural being who leaves it alone and, and, and it operates on its own. What if that machine were a computer? I mean, that's exactly how they pictured it. And once it's in operation, it's on its own. What if we today here are living in that kind of an algorithm of a supercomputer? Right. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's frightening to think about, but a lot of people have raised that very question, including a lot of very bright people uh, up to and including Elon Musk. 800-848-9222. Eddie is in Babylon. Eddie, you have a question for Bill Burns? Uh, yes, I'll tell you, Frank, uh, it was good to meet you on Columbus Day and John Cassavetes. Oh, thanks. Um, thanks. Great to meet you as well. Great. You, you were sitting at the table. You were broadcasting next to, uh, um, uh, what's his name, Benuzo? Um I talked to John about buying a radio show. The guy gives me his cell phone number. I'm like, Oh, my gosh. I said, hamana, 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 like Jackie Gleason. But tonight, you brought it up. I think it's like 2001 Space Odyssey with him saying, Dave, Dave. And I go, I blast into the future, and I look at Terminator uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is living tissue under metal endoskeleton. And I've seen videos of these um, robots they have that they're going to put into battle, I guess with guns that'll shoot people. And at what point 
do I ask uh, your, your friend on the radio that it, it, it becomes autonomous and starts thinking for itself? And maybe they're going to become politicians. So will we have a robot that's president one day? just controls us and just takes everything away. Eddie, the, let me let Bill uh, take that question however however he wants to address it. Bill, what are your thoughts on these sort of robotic super soldiers and if there might be a scenario in which folks uh, in the near or distant future are voting for robotic AI politicians? Look at the scenario right now. Um, right now, within I would say two years, you are going to see robotic delivery trucks. No human beings in them. They'll be doing those deliveries robotically. Same thing with companies like um, like Amazon, using drones for deliveries, flying drones. What I'm getting at is once you program the computer system directing this to make its own decisions based on an algorithm. The algorithm can be hidden. It can be buried. But that is still going to be um, operating. What if, right now, we're living in an algorithm? For example, every time we come up with a new vaccine for COVID-19, the, the virus changes, it's almost as though it's a living thing punking us with new variations every time we have a new vaccine. And the purpose of the new variations is to evade the vaccine we've just developed. Might that sound like an, like an algorithm, a kind of a cosmic algorithm that, that as a human species we're being played with? Uh, it certainly does. Talking with Bill Burns. It, so, Bill, explain to folks if they're just tuning in and they missed the beginning of our previous conversation, they may understand the dangers of AI or the potential dangers of of robots in general. Why can why can a, a humanity or a company that's run by humans, an Amazon, a Tesla, any any um, aeronautics defense manufacturer? Why can a company simply not program AI to avoid harm to humans? Why can't they just have that robotic AI commandment, thou shalt not harm a human, and have it be ingrained as part of that robot's programming? Let's say that in your supercomputer, part of your program is to protect the planet, to fight climate change, to come up with the solution, you're the programmer, and you program that master computer to combat climate change. And because you're not, you yourself are not a computer, you don't know all the data about the Earth's climate, you basically give the computer carte blanche to do whatever it can do to any system that will fight climate change. And the computer, analyzing all the data, just like how to, just like the HAL 2000, analyzing all the data, comes up, looks around the entire planet, 
comes up with the one solution for what is causing climate change. And that solution, that cause, is human civilization acting on the original algorithmic programming eliminate the cause of climate change, it begins to eliminate human beings. Mm. Mm. Like, and, and instead of a devastating flood, an exploding planet, it's a virus that seemingly changes every time we try and fight the virus. The virus is winning. It's affecting more and more of us. How qu- if I were a computer, I would be using COVID. How quickly is the technology that's driving artificial intelligence advancing? It is advancing so fast. That's why the, 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 um, one of these engineers at Google, that's why this person went public and said that what Google is doing, it's like, this is the modern Victor Frankenstein, basically. You you build, it doesn't have to look like Boris Karloff, uh, you build a computer that will exist forever, that will make decisions based on data points that human beings themselves can't even fathom, and can make them lickety-split, and has complete control over the means of communication, the electronic grid, farms, food production, distribution. Just imagine. Believe me, I am. Uh, Back in August, the Washington Post had an op-ed exploring some of these same issues. The headline was How AI Could Accidentally Extinguish Humankind. Fascinating piece by Emil Torres, and we, we talked about it at the time. But Torres goes and compares the modern predictions about AI with what people were saying in the 1930s about nuclear power and nuclear weapons, and then what folks were saying in the mid to late 1970s about the future of personal computers. And pioneers in those industries were wildly off about their predictions for the use cases of both of those things. Do you think a lot of the people that are positing predictions about the future uh, use of AI today, do you think they may be similarly off base as to the experts of the past? Oh, sure, because there are things that um, we're going to be bumping up against, uh, problems, types of problems that human uh, 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 human beings can't um, present to a computer in such a way that it can get a solution. What the artificial intelligence experts, what the warning is, that what happens when human beings are no longer doing the programming? What happens when um, an artificially intelligent computer is doing its own program? At, at that point, even if you, even depending upon what your primary conditions are, like no harm to human beings, etc., or through your inaction, do not allow a harm to come to human being. That's the uh, second law, I think. What what happens when 
and this you see this happening in algorithms a lot, when you've got these two competing foundational algorithms, like I can't do my job, the computer is thinking, because human beings are in the way. But yet, I've got my first law of robotics, which is saying that I can't cause harm to a human being. Will the computer figure out a way to do its job and the harm to humanity be a collateral damage, not a deliberate damage? That's what, when computers start doing their own programming, you will see solutions like that. We're going to continue with Bill Burns in just a moment. We'll try and squeeze in some of your calls at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. When we come back in a moment, we're going to talk about Mars. There was a fascinating discovery made on Mars, which you might have heard about. What you might not have heard about is the potential significance of such a discovery. We'll explore it with Bill Burns on the other side of midnight straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Midnight in the desert Shooting stars across the sky Magical journey will take us on a ride filled with the longing, searching for the truth. Will we make it till tomorrow? Will the sun shine on you? This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined by New York Times bestselling author Bill Burns, uh, who has written The Day After Roswell. He's also been the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia and is someone that has written extensively about the idea of aliens and about the ideas behind space travel. Uh, So much of the future of space travel, actually so much of the present of space exploration, seems to involve Mars. Multiple nations, including our own, are working to launch these missions to Mars. Even if manned missions to Mars are a ways off, rovers are a very present-day thing. And one of the interesting discoveries that has been made on Mars is that of a subterranean lake. Bill, uh, tell folks about this subterranean lake that was discovered on Mars. What exactly is it, and how was it discovered? Well, it, 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 uh, it's near the poles, and it was discovered. Well, first of all, we uh, we have satellites on Mars as well as rovers on Mars, and through various measurements, through various soundings, um, NASA has determined that there is a subterranean lake near the Martian North Pole. Now, 
fascinating thing about this is that it has water. So it's not just an an ancient lake bed that may contain some sediments from from three billion years ago that there was once a piece of organic life. No, this is an active water-filled lake on Mars. If there's water, right, there's an, uh, wherever there's water, there's usually life. So it may well be that in that lake um, exist life forms. And the fascinating thing where it gets really crazy, really insane, is at some point we're going to analyze the life forms in that lake. And it's going to be sooner rather than later. And when we analyze that data, when we actually have physical proof, the life forms themselves in the water, in our own hands, and we determine, which I think we will determine, that this is not some alien, strange life form, right, of some strange form of amoeba that uh, that um, develops two heads or something. No. What we're going to find in those life forms is that in that lake are all the chemicals for building life on planet Earth. Mm. Because what happened almost, almost, almost four billion years ago, as the planets were forming... And there was water on Mars. We were bombarded, as we're bombarded today, but back then in the early, in the early solar system, it was a, a cascade of meteors. Meteors, large chunks, blew whole sections of Mars off the planet. Just, just smashed into Mars, blew it off the planet. And uh, this was still in the days when Mars would have had an atmosphere. The atmosphere was blown away by the sun's um, energy because Mars didn't have an iron core the way Earth has. And but in those but chunks of Mars broke off, and they landed on Earth. They landed in the polar oceans that had the form of life. So if life began on planet Earth from chunks of Mars that were blown off by meteors and landed on Earth, and that started life on this planet, guess what? We're all Martians. Hmm. Uh, when will we know what, what sort of DNA is present in that water? What, form, what types of life forms were once present on Mars? Um, when will we be able to analyze the data that's present in that water? What's going to happen is there are going to be um, craft that will have the capability of spectral analysis. So just like we know there's probably water um, on some of the moons of Jupiter and uh, Neptune, um, Enceladus, for example, probably has water. <clears throat> Jupiter probably has water. So what we're going to find out is that our solar system, Mars, 
the outer planets are probably teeming with life. And the clue is going to be um, how close is life to planet Earth? My guess is that the way life formed in, in our solar system, I mean, I believe that it's happening now. For example, um, those two comets that came uh, um, sailing through our solar system, uh, Oumuamua and Borisov, mm-hmm. they both had these really weird, uh, the way they were spinning. They were uh, flopping end to end. They were spinning around. Um, they were also um, rotating themselves. The way they spun through, it was as if they were lawn sprinklers. And in fact, they probably did have water. Now imagine that they were going through solar systems. So they're not aimed at planet Earth. They're not aimed at planet Venus. They're going through solar systems spewing water. In that water, since bacteria live in space, since viruses live in space, they are basically spewing life. Mm. Now, it's random, but the whole point is they're going through systems where there may be planets that are habitable. And habitable may mean not that there's sunlight and people are walking on the surface, but habitable may mean that there are life forms in the oceans. So we could have a solar system teeming with life in oceans, in subterranean seas, just like planet Earth. Assuming that there was once life on Mars, and further assuming there's no sentient life currently on Mars, would the analysis of the life forms that were in this uh, sample that, that we get from the subterranean lake, could that provide a clue as to what caused the extinction of life on Mars if there was, as you, as we're assuming, life on Mars a long time ago? Yes, it could. Um, it, it could by... Um how it reacted. So, for example, um, it's probably unlikely, given how short a time Mars had an atmosphere, that there was any form of civilization on the surface of Mars. But there could have been, I mean, how how we define life, for example, um, trees on Earth, trees communicate with each other. You'd say, well, if they don't talk, they, they don't talk, but they communicate chemically. For example, when Dutch elm disease hits one tree in a, in a grove, it sends out chemicals subterranean through its roots that alert the other trees, that warn the other trees to protect themselves from the virus. What if there are communities of subterranean life in the lake of in the Martian lake that communicate chemically just the way fish communicate chemically on, on planet earth it's not just sounds it's not just speech it's chemicals Uh, amazing. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment or if you have a question for Bill Burns given what we know about the past of Mars its present and maybe its potential future. Do you think a, a an Earth-based colonization of Mars 
is a possibility in the future? Oh, yes. Um, what I think will, will be happening is that, first of all, we now know how to make two things. There are um, devices that make oxygen. We can do that. Remember, plants produce oxygen. So in a heavy um, carbon dioxide atmosphere, what do plants produce? Oxygen. So we can colonize planets like Mars um, through um, being in a symbiotic relationship with the plants that are creating oxygen. So let's just say that as, first of all, I don't see the climate issues being resolved on planet Earth. I mean, let's, let's be blunt. Mm-hmm. This, these storms that hit Florida, I mean, they were, they were like beyond belief uh, uh, deadly. So um, I believe that humans are going to be looking for other planets, just like, just like we think that um, aliens on, a, on if we find aliens in other worlds, they'll be all strange looking. What happens when in the future, and it'll probably be this century, human beings go out into the galaxy and they go out and they're getting impressions of life forms from other planets. And what they find out is that they're us. And that what's throughout the universe are human beings, or at least humanoid type of life. That, um, and what if billions and billions of years ago, one of those um, early civilizations achieved the ability to um, send colonists to distant planets? Well, you're not going to send astronauts light years across space. How are you going to transmit? How are you going to colonize distant planets? Well, we're doing it now. Mm. You do it by sending your DNA, by sending a DNA to a habitable planet where life can take form. That's how human beings spread throughout the galaxy. Very, very interesting. And, uh, you know, in some ways, it's sort of an interstellar version of what we know has happened here on Earth. Uh, We know that uh, life on uh, North America, for instance, didn't begin in North America and that uh, people here uh, thousands of years ago came here from somewhere else. Is it really that much of a stretch to think that the same thing could happen on a, on a planetary basis uh, when people are exploring for uh, some of the same reasons? Very, very interesting. Now, one of the things that uh, every president seems to want to try to do, Bush wanted to do it, Obama wanted to do it, Trump wanted to do it, and now um, Biden is trying to do it, is go back to the moon. The conventional wisdom, about why we haven't been back to the moon in over in a half a century at this point when we were making those lunar missions under the Apollo program seemingly all the time in the late 60s early 70s is that America sort of lost interest in it and you couldn't really justify the expenditure of public funds just to do one more lunar trip do you have another theory as to why maybe we haven't made going back to the moon a priority there are a few theories um One is that 
And this is the overriding theory, both from conspiracy theorists, and they're out there, to even folks at NASA. And it's this. We weren't the first to go to the moon. That uh, when we got to the moon, if you, there are what are known as, it's fact, I listed them in a book I wrote, would have been 30 some odd years ago. It was, there are these hidden NASA transmissions where astronauts are caught, these the lunar astronauts, are caught talking about anomalies on the moon. Here's one anomaly. I forget which astronaut, so excuse me because I've mixed up all the names. Sure. They, um, they were riding in the lunar rover, and one of them said, hey, wait a minute, there's a road here. And the NASA controllers almost panicked when he said that. Don't talk about aliens. There was a road on the moon that this astronaut discovered. There was another instance where an astronaut said, uh, really in an, an excited utterance, when he said, hey, somebody's shooting at us. So I believe what we discovered on the moon were alien bases. The last thing, the last thing we're going to admit to is, oh, there are aliens living on the moon only a quarter of a, of a billion miles away from Earth. Well, they get that, they want to. Yeah, uh, um, talk about panic. Yeah, well, so, that's what I was going to ask. The reason that you think they would suppress that information and not put it, that out there is because of the planet, the, the planetary panic that would ensue. Absolutely. I mean, if we found out that aliens are using extraterrestrials are using our moon as a base mm. to spy on Earth, to um, interact with us, to send their I mean, we would be in, we would be in a panic. So best to pull the astronauts off the moon, lest somebody say, "Hey, look, there's a crash ship over here." People have said they have seen crash ships. In fact, one of the people at NASA in the photo section was this a person called Donna Hare, and she told this story that they were. Uh, and I'll tell you two stories about the lunar surface. They were developing photographs from the satellites going around the moon over the lunar surface. And there, on the surface, on the photograph, as it came up in the machine, was it looked like a black triangle that didn't belong, a spaceship. Mm. The lunar photographer, this was in the days before digital photography, the uh, photographer took an airbrush and brushed out that image. Donna Hare was shocked. She said, why are you doing that to the image? And the person looked at her and said, we're not supposed to find things like that on the moon. <laughs> that was one. That's wild. In another instance, there was the, uh, the person who started the American remote viewing program for the CIA was known as Ingo Swan. Ingo Swan was a true psychic. And um, after the day after Roswell came out, he called me. 
And he said, I wanted to tell you what I have seen on the moon when I remote viewed the moon. And I said, that, yeah, I'd love to know. I, I, I knew who he was. He, he'd written a book. So he's talking about this. And he says that on the moon, he remote viewed alien structures. And there were people in a kind of a factory building something. Okay, that was one person's subjective impression. Then I met another person who was, um, today he was a psychiatrist, a psychologist. When he was in the air, this is what he told me. This was in UFO magazine. When he was in the Air Force, he was a phototechnologist. This was in the days, this was back in the 60s. Back in the 60s. This is before digital photography. Where if you wanted to take photographs of the, the moon and everything, they had to come into a machine. They were processed in the machine, and they came out like long pieces of lasagna. That was how that was done. So uh, this is at an Air Force facility. I forget where. But it was divided into two parts. One part was a conventional, everyday Air Force facility. But there was a part of the base that was secret. Nobody was allowed. You had to have special permission. One Sunday morning, he was on. He gets an emergency call from the other side of the base. Our photo machine is broken. Can you fix it? And he says, I'm not. I'm on the regular side of the base. Just come over. This is an emergency. He goes over there and he says, the funny thing was I saw people from all over the world. All over the world. Why are they on an Air Force base? I'm seeing people from, from Asia, from Africa, from India. They're all over the world. Why are they here at this Air Force base? He goes to that secure location. He sees the machine. He looks at it. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have part, uh, uh, parts went out. I have to replace parts. I can do it two ways. I can run back on the other side of the base, take all the parts, bring them back here, see if they work. If they don't work, bring them back, make trips back across. He's in the Air Force. That's how you do it when you're in the military. Or, or he said... I can take the machine itself back with me to my shop. When I do that, I can fix it on the spot. The guy says, you do it that way. We need what's inside. It won't come out. They go to the other side of the base with the machine. They have a truck. They get it set up. He fixes it. And you know what comes out of the photo machine? Tells the story. This long strip of photos showing factories. And buildings on the dark side of the moon. Mm. And so um, the tech from the, from the secret side of the base goes, isn't that amazing? Look at that. We had to take those photos. And when he sees my friend who was in shock at what he was seeing, he realizes he wasn't certified. Mm. He didn't have clearance to see it, and he looks at him and he says, if you talk, we're both dead. 
Bill, I got to ask you to pause one moment. We'll continue with uh, Bill Burns in just a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars, and let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. In other words, baby, kiss me. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. A few more minutes. We are enjoying the wisdom and the company of Bill Burns. He is a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, Bill, I I spoke with uh, an astronaut from the 1970s last week, and I asked him, of all the films about space travel, which did he find to be the most realistic in terms of capturing the space travel experiment and the astronaut the, the astronaut experience? And he said that he thought, no bones about it, it was Apollo 13. Apollo 13 obviously didn't make it to the moon. There's always been some people that have raised questions about what really happened with respect to Apollo 13. What have your sources indicated to you and what theories might you have about Apollo 13 that might deviate from what we saw in the Tom Hanks movie? The uh, the deviation might be that it was never an accident, that what happened was deliberate, that it was we were warned, we were shown, we were told UFOs have buzzed our spacecraft if you look at some of the hidden NASA transmissions, you will hear astronauts talking about um, there's a ship out there, there is something out there, it's watching us. Um, the lunar astronauts, when the lunar command module was in orbit, they would say there's something out there, they're watching us. And finally, they were, they'd warned us off starting a moon base with the accident on Apollo 13. And supposedly we're watching to make sure that nobody really got hurt from that accident, but it was time to go home. And it was the accident saying, it's over. So you combine that. Now remember, the moon, what we were going to do on the moon was to mine it, because it is a source of phenomenal minerals, that the country... Forget the planet for a second. That the country that can mine the moon, whether it's China, India, or the United States, or Russia, 
and can transport some of that material back here, it's going to be a gold mine. And so um, are we the only ones doing that mining? What we found out was that there were others on the moon, others from another civilization, another society that wanted us off, and they made it clear we shouldn't be on the moon. And that's why we never went back. Uh, it has been uh, – the hour has flown by, Bill, when, as it does whenever we get to speak. I will very much look forward to our next conversation. Uh, we've been talking with uh, William Burns. If you want a, a whole education on a wide variety of subjects, you could type his name into Amazon. Whatever your interests are, whether it's uh, Nikola Tesla, whether it's extraterrestrials, or whether it's the Rat Pack – Chances are Bill Burns has a book on it. Bill, I'll look forward to our next interaction. I look forward to it. Thank you, Frank. You have a wonderful, you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, we'll take your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Then we'll go live to Lebanon. Your influence counts. So use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. One of the things that I'm continually struck by is the average ordinary wisdom of the people in our audience. So one of the things that I really enjoy doing, in fact, it's one of my favorite things about being on the radio, is usually the way that talk radio has worked in the advice realm is people will call in with a question to the commentator. Sometimes it's a psychologist. Sometimes it's just an average, ordinary advice person. Dr. Laura still does this, I believe. You people call Dr. Laura and say, oh, Dr. Laura this, Dr. Laura that. Frazier Crane on his hit TV show, he would answer all people's questions about what they should do. One of the things that I like to do is find questions about people seeking advice and then turn them over to you. And uh, that was the first question, that was the first thought that came to my mind this weekend when I was reading the New York Times Magazine. The New York Times Magazine has a section called The Ethicist by Kwame Anthony Apaya. Uh, He teaches philosophy at NYU. He's written a number of books, including Cosmopolitan, The Honor Code, and The Lies That Bind. And... There was such an interesting question that was written to Kwame Anthony Apaya. Now, the person withheld their name. I don't know if they withheld their name or the magazine chose to withhold their name. So I have no idea if this is actually real. I think that it is, but it may not be. You know, uh, something tells me that a lot of the stories that people used to write into the Penthouse Forum about, I don't know if that's still a thing, but a lot of the stories that people used to write into the Penthouse Forum weren't necessarily based in reality. So I have no idea if this anecdote slash question is actually real. I think it is, or if it's not. That being said, this was one of those things that caused me to scratch my head and think, what would I do? If I was giving this person advice and ultimately I am I went back and forth 
So whenever I go back and forth with what answer to give to someone, what I ultimately do is kick the bucket over to or kick the can over to you. Pass the buck. And see, I was combining kick the can and uh, pass the buck over to you. And um, that's what I'm going to do. Listen to this. This was written to the New York Times magazine, name withheld. It's from a woman. My husband and I have been married for four years and together for over 10. Two months before our wedding and shortly after he and his two children moved in with me to the house we bought together, I received a message from someone informing me that my husband and his ex-wife had been having an affair during our entire relationship. We've received counseling and are working through it. That's not my dilemma. I give this background to help explain how vehemently I hate this woman, meaning her husband's ex-wife. And during their marriage, he caught her cheating on him multiple times. She was slash is an alcoholic and prescription drug abuser. I know. What's the draw? I have always believed that their youngest child was a product of one of these affairs. And as the child gets older, his resemblance to their old neighbor is becoming very striking. The son is now 15 and has both emotional and physical problems, many due to his mother's fentanyl overdose when pregnant. I had a conversation with my now husband early on in our relationship about this topic, and he said that since he had raised the child as his son, at this point, the child was his son, and genetics didn't matter. Very noble, and I agree. My husband now acts as though there's no possibility of his son being biologically anyone's but his. My ethical situation is that I feel his son should eventually be made aware that his genetic background may not be what he assumes it to be, especially in light of the difficulties he's already facing. What I don't know is if I feel that way only because I want to cause pain to his mother. With all the family genetics tests that are now available, it could easily be found out as, quote, an accident. By subscribing to one of these services, I have often been tempted to purchase one, though I have never done so, knowing that it could cause pain to all involved. Is this information my stepson should have? Or do I feel this way only out of spite? If it is true, what would be a good way for that information to be, quote, discovered? Should the biological father ever be informed? Name withheld. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I'm going to read you the ethicist's answer to this question. But first, I'd rather hear yours. Understand the situation. This woman believes that her stepson is actually the biological child of her husband's Former neighbor. 
Now, I have explored a lot of relationship issues. I have read about a lot of relationship issues. A lot of people like to talk to me, so I've I've heard firsthand about a lot of relationship issues. This is one that I've never heard of. I've heard, you know, I know of stepchildren. I have a stepmother myself. Some relationships are good in terms of stepparents. Some are very poor. I have never heard of a situation where a, a person's behaviorally challenged teenage stepson may not even be the biological son of her husband, and the husband doesn't want to find out the answer. What would you tell this woman? What would you do if you were her? 800-848-9222. That is the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. I thought a great deal about that. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what Kwame Anthony Apaya said to this woman, and then I'd, I'll rather hear your answers. Your account may not be flattering, but it identifies the right issues. You're aware that you want that you have discreditable motives for wanting to reveal what you believe to be your stepson's likely ancestry. You realize that acting out of malice toward your your husband's ex-wife, however, tempting would be wrong, but you realize too that there may also be good reasons for establishing the facts. And indeed there are. In general, People are owed the truth about their ancestry. And in general, people are entitled to know that they have children. You are left to wonder whether your grievances are distorting your evaluation of the issue. So here's the view of someone who lacks your mixed motives, but also knows much less about the pertinent principles. As long as your stepson is a minor who needs lots of support, it may well be unhelpful and unkind to him to raise the issue. It would certainly be wrong to manipulate him into joining an online ancestry service. And he is the person whose interest matters most, not your husband's ex-wife or your husband or his possible biological father or you. Once your stepson is an adult, you can encourage your husband to broach the subject. There are moral as well as medical reasons for your stepson to know the truth. Whatever that turns out to be, It will be up to your stepson to decide whether he wants to do genetic testing. If he does, and your suspicions are borne out, he can then decide whether to contact that former neighbor to confirm paternity. While the biological father would have an interest here, that interest doesn't outweigh the interests of your troubled stepson. So he essentially is saying to this woman, don't say anything, at least not for now. When he's an adult... Then encourage the husband, your husband again. 800-848-9222. And all I'm thinking is, you know, I'm trying to, I put my hand, myself in the mindset of everybody involved, except the ex-wife. The ex-wife sounds like a despicable person, and I have a tough time um, putting myself in her shoes. That ex-wife had better be hot. I mean, you can imagine this, this guy was not, on, not only putting up with her cheating on him, but then he cheats on the current wife with the ex-wife? I, I, I would love to see what that ex-wife looked like because she sounds like she's got every issue in the world that says red flag, red flag, stay away from. So you, you know she's a looker or she's got something going for her.
Um, but um, what would you do? 800-848-9222. If I were the kid and I was 15 once and there was a possibility that the person I grew up thinking was my father was not my biological father, I'd want to know it. I'd want to. It wouldn't affect the relationship that I had with my father, but I would want to know who my biological father was, not only for uh, emotional reasons, but for medical reasons. What if your biological father has a history of some type of disease? And if I'm the person that might be the biological father, you damn well better believe that I'd want to know. But what does that mean in terms of informing this child, in terms of encouraging him to get a DNA test? What would you do? What advice would you give this woman? Would it be the same as what the ethicist gave her? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Cassandra in New Rochelle. Hello, Cassandra. Cassandra. Hello. Hello. Yeah. I would divorce him. I would run. All right. Well, I run. mean, clearly she's made the decision not to do that. They're in counseling. Run as far as I wait from that drama. They're in counseling. They're trying to work through their issues. Seems like she has a relationship with her stepchildren. So since she's decided that she's not going to divorce this person and run, what would you encourage her to do under the current circumstances, Cassandra? Run. Get away from that. That's not her problem. Run. All she right. Well, her. I mean, she, she do- betrayed her. Yeah. Well, she doesn't want to run, though. That's the thing. She wants to stay and try and work things out in their relationship. I am never, unless there's abuse going on, physical abuse, I never like to second guess someone's decision to stay in a marriage. No matter how poor a marriage might look from an outsider's perspective, you know, um, you really don't know what it's like until you're in it. I mean, I'm sure those of you that have been married know know that firsthand, that uh, your perspective being in a marriage is very different from someone's perspective looking at it through outside lens. Sometimes it may look better than it actually is. Sometimes it may look worse. So I don't like to second-guess people's decision to stay in a marriage, again, unless there's uh, abuse going on. What would you tell this woman? 800-848-9222-123. Four open lines. Fugazi Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Fugazi Tom. Hey, what's going on? Um, do the, cur- the current guardians agree to accept him as their son? Well, I mean, I-, I only have the information that I shared with you. So, I mean, when you say the current guardians, what do you mean the current yeah, guardians? Yeah, who, who he's the living with, who he's staying with. Yeah, who he's staying with, well, who's raising yeah. him. I mean, the, his father absolutely is raising him as his son, and his stepmother okay. is is looking after him as if she, she's, she's the stepmother. Yeah. Okay, okay. I would say no. Don't tell him nothing. Don't tell him who nothing. Be- no, no, no. Who, who, what would benefit? Who would benefit from that? If this kid gets like 15 years old and he is told this, he will not accept his father. It'll be too late. You know, he'll be uh, too attached to these people. You know, if, you, if you're not going to do that by like 8, 9, 10, I mean, they will not be attached. If they're too young, they ain't going to understand it. If they're about 15 years old, they are going to go through something like, what should I do? Who's, they're going to always accept the people that 
that raised him, that took care of him. Now, you know, okay, I, know now, I know that's go ahead. I, I totally get what you're saying. But let's say, let's say the person that might be his biological father dies in a year, right? Uh, and he finds out in five years, the kid, that that was his biological father. And now his biological father has died and he's never had the opportunity to meet him. Don't you think there's a chance if he learns that his father his you know, the person he always grew up believing was his father and his stepmother, if they knew that there was a possibility and didn't tell him that and they were dishonest with him and uh, withheld that information, don't you think there's a possibility that that kid may grow up to resent his parents? Um, so you said the kid's biological father dies. Right. In theory. Right, uh, because you don't know okay, what happens in okay. a year. I, okay, I mean, I don't know how the kid is going to find out who his father is, but if he does, um, he's going to want to know why. Why he's, was, he wasn't raised by his father and with them. And, you know, I don't know what they can tell him, but if they took care of him good, you know what I'm saying? Uh, he's going to be confused, but he is going to be stuck with them two people. They raised him. They, they, You know what I'm saying? They mm-hmm. raised him. They took care of him. They fed him, clothed him. You know, that's who he know. Because, like I said, if by 15 he don't know and he and he he finds out by 15, uh, he's not going to accept his father. He's going to accept his father as being his father, but not in his heart. Thank you, Fugazi Tom. 800-848-9222. Marianne in Queens, what do you think? Um, hi, Frank. Hi. How are you? Great. Yeah. Well, I believe that she, that is not a, um, a secret that belongs to her. It's the father who has to disclose that. Mm-hmm. Second of all, I believe that if this uh, child is in trouble now, if he finds out that that's not his father, he might say, what are I living for? If even the father that I thought was my father is not even my father. I would recommend her to wait until he is more mature, and then his father is the one that has to disclose that to him. Because he can become really a, a criminal or something because he doesn't even have a father. Right. Well, well I don't that's, think she tell him. that's advice very similar to what uh, the ethicist uh, gave gave her. Thank you, Marianne. 800-848-9222. Jay is in the Poconos. What do you think, Jay? Good morning, Frank. I think honesty is the best policy, and I have some experience in this. Um, I have a granddaughter whose father is black. And when my stepdaughter got pregnant, the father wanted nothing to do with her. And uh, years later, you know, it it became obvious that her whole family is white and she's black. And um, I said to my stepdaughter, you you know, you you need to tell her what went on. And uh, they have. And now the father's somewhat in the picture and she's okay with it. So I don't think the parents should get away with hiding something from the child because it it will mess them up later in life when they do find out or if they find out it's going to just destroy them their trust in their parent what they know is their parent and they should just tell the truth see i I tend to agree with you right and uh if this were if this were my child uh that's what i would do but 
let's put ourselves in the shoes of the stepmother here, the one that wrote the letter to the uh, New York Times magazine. Her husband does not want to go down this road. He wants to go on living their lives as they have been, even though uh, there looks like there's a good chance that this is the biological son of the former neighbor. So if you're, uh, let's say you believe that honesty is the best policy, and let's say your spouse does not believe that, what do you then do? What do you do? Do you keep working on trying to convince your spouse, or do you do something else to take matters into your own hands? Yes, through their therapy, I think they got to work on the father to, you know, if you never own up to your mistakes, you never grow, you never get better, and you're doomed to make them again. So when you're forced with that, you know, like I said, honesty is the best policy, and that's what they should do. All right. Uh, thank you, Jay. 800-848-9222. We're going to go live to Lebanon in a couple of minutes and talk drugs with Nico Vorobayev. He is a convicted drug dealer turned freelance journalist and author. The whole world is talking about his book, Dope World. They are saying that he is the Anthony Bourdain of drug dealers. We're going to get into that in just a moment. But first, uh, Tom in the Bronx has been patiently holding. Hello, Tom. Yeah, yes, Frank. Hiya, Tom. Um, I, I could say one thing about uh, robots or uh, computers. Mm-hmm. There were two computers recently. I don't know how long back now, how many months. But they found that they actually developed a strange language between the two of them. The professors couldn't uh, figure out what they were saying, so they pulled the plug on the two of them. Did you hear about that? I actually did not hear about that, I don't think, unless it's uh, unless it's a story that I heard and the way that you are reiterating it to me is unfamiliar. But no, I don't think I heard about it. Yeah, it, it was in uh, some college, I think. But uh, But that's exactly what happened. I mean, I think these things, they're supposed to be robots uh, that actually would be used for wartime, too. Uh, They'd be used to, uh, like soldiers, to go out. I've heard stories like that, too. Well, uh, Tom, there's a lot to be worried about, and there's a lot to keep in mind, that's for sure. Tom, thank you for the call. 800-848-9222. We're on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's uh, Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. By the way, I think we're going to do a segment on this tomorrow with uh, John Stossel. I'm awaiting confirmation on this. I am more convinced than ever that I am being shadow banned on Twitter. Um. You know what the clearest example of this is? You know, but right before the show, I put out a tweet that we were going to have Andrew Yang on. Now, Andrew Yang, being a good sport, retweeted our tweet. Andrew Yang has 1.8 million Twitter followers. 1.8 million. Do you know how many people retweeted my tweet that Andrew Yang was going to be on the show? Nine. Nine. There is no possible way that Andrew Yang can retweet me to 1.8 million Twitter followers and only nine people are interested enough in retweeting this. So I'll tell you, 
I am more convinced than ever that there is something rotten in Denmark. Speaking of foreign countries, we're going to go live to Lebanon in just a moment. But first, let me say hello to Pete on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Hey, Frank, a similar kind of situation. My daughter, when she was about uh, 20, I told her, always get the, you know, especially if you're living close, you know, like the situation about telling about the father. If you're living, you know, 500, 600 miles away, you got a better chance. But if you're living on Staten Island, you got to know the last name of the guy that you're going to date because she almost dated my uh, cousin's son. You know, they never met. And she met him, and then she met a friend of his, and she ended up dating the friend. But you got to get the last name, especially if you're living on Staten Island, because you could have a real mess up, especially the kids could be born, you know, with uh, birth defects and stuff. I have a cousin like that already. So that's my point absolutely. I wanted to bring. Absolutely. No, yeah. absolutely. I, I, that's exactly one of the many reasons uh, that uh, it's important to keep that in mind. Pete, thank you. We are going live to Lebanon to talk with the author of Dope World, Nico Vorobayev, in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano it seems like anywhere you turn there's a lot of discussion of drugs we need only look at the statistics to see the alarming number of drug overdose deaths that are taking place in this country if you uh, want to discuss uh, politics so much of the conversation around border security includes conversations about how drugs are coming into the United States. If you want to include uh, discussions about foreign policy and geopolitics, so much of the conversation involves where these drugs are being manufactured. It's an economic conversation. It's a public health conversation. It's a political conversation. And uh, if you take a look at the book Dope World, it is a fascinating fascinating story and there are so many aspects of the global drug drug trade that i think many of us don't think about somebody that does think about it is nico vorobayev he thinks about it because he's lived it he is a convicted drug dealer turned freelance journalist and an author uh his latest book is dope world nico uh joins us live from lebanon nico good morning thanks so much for joining me on the radio Hey, Frank. Uh, thanks for having me. I know it's quite late now in the States, uh, so I hope my voice doesn't put your listeners to sleep. 
<laughs> we're just starting. We're, we're just starting our days, Nico. You're not going to put anybody to sleep. Hey, you've been called the Anthony Bourdain of the drug world. Is that a fair characterization? I mean, I hope I don't end up the same way, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a privilege to be to be compared to the man himself, the legend. Yeah. Uh, so, for folks that don't know your story, you do not have a conventional background for a drug dealer. You came from a very standard middle class uh, family. How did you end up entering the drug trade? Uh, take us to how it all began. Um. So basically, yeah, I did have a very middle class background, but it's also a middle class immigrant background. And at the time, we're living in uh, Britain in the UK, and there weren't really a lot of uh, a lot of other Russians around. I was originally born in Russia, so I never really fit in. Also, like we traveled a lot. Uh, you can maybe you can pick up a slight uh, American twang to my to my accent because I learned English in the states. So we kept moving around a lot. I was always a new kid in school. I always never fit in. And that kind of pushed me towards um, towards other other places where maybe I shouldn't have been sticking my nose in. That, that led me to um, sort of underground uh, rave culture. So every weekend I'd be going up somewhere like somewhere in the forest or under a bridge or in a warehouse, you know, and they have like these electro, illegal electro music parties, which you'd only find the location on the night. So I'd end up going to them and uh, I started selling ecstasy there. And then it all kind of got a little out of control. So by the time I uh, I got caught, I was already in university. I was already having like a, like a several people operation. So I already had several like runners working for me. And what country uh, were you living in at the time? Britain. I was living in London. And uh, so you, it uh, it sounds like maybe this was not a strategic well-thought-out decision to, okay, I'll become a drug dealer. This is the path that I'll take to becoming a drug dealer. It sounds like this was sort of um, a, a a circumstance that you fell into based on what was going on in your life at the time. One thing sort of leads to another. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the the, the, the case in, in, in most of the time. I mean, like, very rarely, you know, someone will wake up one morning and think, hey, you know, I'm going to become a criminal. Uh, yeah, it's uh, when, when, I, when like ninety percent of the time, uh, the way people end up where they are is because of their their circumstance and the position they find themselves in. Not that that makes like one choice for another mm -hmm. okay, but like we have to understand why people make these choices. How much time did you end up doing in prison? So originally, I got a two and a half year sentence which was a little harsher than what I was expecting. I ended up serving around a year of that. I got released a little bit early because I was a good boy in prison. I didn't start any fights. Uh, but for a while, I had to wear, you know, like the, the electronic bracelet around my around my leg. So I had to be home from 7 till 7. So basically, I was under house arrest for a couple of months after that as well. Do you regret uh, that decision, or uh, meaning the decision to become a drug dealer, or do you view that as just a part of your life journey that gave you some interesting stories to tell and some unique expertise that no one else has? I mean, put it that way. Like, when I was in prison, I think the main thing about prison, it's not like the gangs or, like, you know, any of the, like, that Shawshank Redemption stuff that you might see in the movies. The main thing about prison is it's just really boring 
and depressing and you're stuck in the room in a cell all day like with only your thoughts for company and like your thoughts just go around and round like a merry-go-round and yeah at the time you know it felt like I was going a little bit crazy so at that moment like there was a lot of uh a lot of questioning myself like how did I how did I screw up so badly but on the other hand like looking back at it now and this is more than 10 years later I mean if I hadn't done all those dumb things back then you and me wouldn't be talking right now. I wouldn't be a published author. I probably have like some kind of nine to five job, you know, working in an office, which I'd hate myself for. That would probably push me to be a drug dealer again. If I'm honest with <laughs> Nico, you. you don't strike me as the nine to five type. I, I, I think that uh, somehow you would avoided that. You would have avoided that fate uh, no matter what. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with the author of the book Dope World, Nico Vorobayev. He's joining us live uh, from Lebanon. Uh, Nico, there's always a lot of negative connotation. I think this is international, but there's a lot of negative connotation to the role of being a drug dealer. They're portrayed as the villain in uh, after-school specials, in news stories. Politicians are always pushing for stiffer prison sentences for drug dealers. In your view, is that negative reputation that drug dealers have, is that deserved? Is that warranted? I mean, to answer that question, we'd have to define, like, what is a drug dealer? So, like, on paper, like as far as the law is concerned, a drug dealer is only someone who supplies drugs. So that could be someone, that could be you know, like a college student uh, peddling a bit of hash on the side to buy more Che Guevara posters for his dorm. Sure. That could be like um, Lucky Luciano or like El Chapo, you know, like one of those big time like crime bosses. Or that could be just like a, like a heroin addict and like they just sell a little bit more heroin to their friends so that they can get some free smack at the end of the day uh all these people are drug dealers and they're all like uh in very different roles i wouldn't say that like a drug dealer isn't inherently a bad person or or, uh like how should i say like a vicious criminal type but obviously like because of the nature of the business it does attract um a lot of those those criminal types to put it a different way like uh back in prohibition the prohibition era in the states so Al Capone, he like alcohol was considered an illegal drug, sure. pretty much. So Al Capone, like I would say, Al Capone wasn't a bad guy because he sold some booze. Al Capone was a bad guy because he had people lined up against the wall and Tommy gun. You know what I mean? Sure. No, no, no. That uh, that make that makes sense when you put it that way. In terms of you know, there's a big debate in this country about um what what the penalties should be for drug dealers who give someone a drug that they then overdose on. In fact, uh, there's a lot of attempts in many different states to charge drug dealers with murder after if they sell someone drugs, be it fentanyl, be it heroin, be it something else, that leads to their death. And there's um, more and more jurisdictions adopting laws like this that could cost a drug dealer a 20-year prison sentence What's your view on that as a matter of public policy? Do you think it's fair to charge a drug dealer with the death of someone who overdoses? I mean, in one sense, it's like a quality control issue. Um, so in one sense, like, I, I do think that, like, 
like these days there's a lot of testing kits available i think that like uh like for example like uh i even i even had one uh quite recently so like the like reagent test so for example you you uh, like a very basic test you put a little sample of what you have on like a strip of paper or next to some other chemicals and they change color and you can see what's inside and you can kind of check what's in like i think that's like a very basic a uh, very basic test that that anyone can do and it's quite cheap and if drug dealers aren't doing that now i think they should be taken to account uh taken to task for that maybe not for 20 years but that there should be some accountability mm-hmm. but on the other hand like when you have like these 20 year sentences right and again I, I could, let's say like uh let's say your friend you and your friend you're getting high together right and then uh your Friend, your friend dies. So you, you're basically because you shared the drugs with him. You basically supplied them with the drugs, right? Like, right, and that's that. and that's what exactly that's exactly the scenario, which is resulting in some people, including family members of folks that die of a drug overdose, getting charged and potentially facing some very lengthy prison sentences. So it's a very real ethical debate. Yeah, and and the other thing is, so like when let's say you're not you're not dead yet, but you're dying so like you could still be saved like the the, the, the shoot you up with um, naloxone or whatever um let's say that's happening but if you're facing 20 years potentially as someone who supplied that and then you're at the scene and then they die like that's is that going to make you more or less likely to call the paramedics so that's like uh i'm not sure about the, the exact stats in the in the states, but in uh, in Europe, Sweden actually has one of the highest overdose uh, rates in Europe, and also Sweden has some of the toughest drug laws in Europe. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Hmm. There's a there's a survey saying uh, a lot of like heroin addicts they're quite reluctant to call an ambulance for their friends who are overdosing because they're afraid that they're going to be arrested themselves. Sure. sure. Uh, no, that uh, that makes sense, and uh, I think that's uh, one of the prime reasons that there's so much debate about this. Hey, from your expertise and from what your research tells you and from what your experience tells you, how are the bulk of the drugs getting imported into the United States? How are they coming into this country? Oh, that's uh, that's an interesting question. So I remember uh, I started looking into that a while ago when uh, back when back when Trump was all like, "Yeah, build that wall, build that wall." Um, I won't get into all the all the politics around the wall, but first of all, the Mexicans build tunnels, so that would have made a large part of that redundant. But I've also read a DEA report that like. Basically, the the majority of, of drugs who are in the United States from the southern border, they're actually disguised among uh, legitimate traffic. Usually, like uh, like shipments of, of goods coming in in, in lorries and freights and whatever, uh, just simply because there's so much uh, traffic. I mean, like uh, cars, vehicle traffic crossing the southern border each day. It's impossible to check more than like maximum like 10 percent on any given day and 10 percent is probably like if it's not a busy day so like let's say like one one percent is probably like the average so you're checking one percent you're probably gonna make that intelligence focused as well right so you probably like some snitch tipped you off that there's a shipment of such and such coming in hidden some bananas or whatever 
Um, but just because there's so much coming in, that that's the majority of of coke and meth and heroin from the south, from Mexico, that's coming in through legitimate shipping companies. We're seeing legitimate shipping companies. That is that's wild, and that's not uh, that's not part of the narrative that I think most Americans have uh, a full appreciation of, of these days. Uh, we're seeing in the United States. Over 100,000 Americans die every year, last few years anyway, from opioid overdoses, heroin, uh, fentanyl, other opioids. Uh, From what you can tell, where are most of those opioids being manufactured? Are they being manufactured in the United States? Are they coming from places like China? Are they coming from Mexico? Are they coming from somewhere else? So initially, like a lot of it was coming from from Mexico, from places like Sinaloa in Mexico, where I've been, or the like um, a little bit further down south, like like Veracruz and Michoacan. There's like a lot of poppy fields there, and they make heroin there the old school way. You know, so they've got like the they've got the poppy field, the flowers, and like every couple of months they harvest the flowers. Uh, they get, they take the white goo, the which is opium, out of the flowers, and they process that into heroin. That's how it was for for many years until around like the mid 2010s when fentanyl started appearing on the scene. So originally fentanyl was made in China because China has a huge chemical industry, like a legitimate uh, chemical industry. And at the time, uh, fentanyl wasn't illegal to produce in China. So the Chinese chemists, they could make uh, they could make fentanyl completely illegally in their factories and how it shipped over to the United States in the mail. So those days are over. The Chinese have cracked down on it. Uh, but what's happening now is the uh, factories there, the Mexican drug cartels, who used to get their heroin from the farmers, the, the puppy farmers. So now they're getting the ingredients to make fentanyl in the secret labs in Mexico, and then shipping that up north. And another side effect, what's happening from that is now the, the the puppy farmers they're losing out big time. So it's uh, it's disrupted a lot of like the sort of like the local uh, economy, squeezing out the uh, well. It's 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 basically what 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 capitalism does, you know, like squeeze out the the little guy, like the small businessmen, the the big businesses, kind of conglomerate together. Well, no, that makes sense. We have seen a number of governments, both state governments in the United States and even internationally, move towards uh, decriminalizing cannabis. Obviously, cannabis is sort of on a different level than ecstasy, a different level than uh, certainly heroin or fentanyl. What do you think this means for the future of drug use and the drug trade, uh, the decriminalization of cannabis? Uh, yeah, we're actually seeing that all over the world. Um, it's uh, we're seeing that in like, for example, uh, Malta legalized it uh, this year. So in Malta now, you can grow and and smoke your own. Uh, so is Thailand. Thailand was famously strict on it, but Thailand's an interesting example because Thailand's also it's gone the other way as well. So like now, Thailand's declared like a renewed war on drugs. Because there was a there was a ex police officer I think and he went on a shooting rampage through a kindergarten killed like twenty four twenty five kids and there was like a rumor 
and th- this wasn't even backed up by the by the autopsy earlier, but there was a rumor that he was on meth. So then the government decided, like, okay, we're going to do like a whole new crackdown on meth. So like, thing is, like, with, with with cannabis, like, if you're talking about the the drug trade specifically, cannabis is like a fairly minor part of it, and it's probably like the least violent part of it. I think like a lot of it is because like a lot of the people who sell weed. They also smoke weed. Mm. Whereas if you get into something like Coke or meth, a lot of the people who sell Coke or meth also do Coke or meth. So you've got very different personalities running this game. Uh, you've got to have like a way more specialized uh, like criminal outfit because weed, you can grow weed anywhere. Like you can grow weed in Antarctica if you had like the, like the right greenhouse. But Coke, like, you know, you need the logistics, you need to deal with, like, the, the the death squads and the paramilitaries in South America. It's a lot more vicious criminal circle. So I think that, I think legalizing weed, it's, like, a good thing in terms of, like, uh, for adults. Like, if adults want to smoke weed, you know, like, good for them. Like, it, it's, it like, from, a, from, like, a freedom, personal freedom point of view, I think it's a good thing. But I don't think it's really going to affect the drug business that much you, you mentioned overall. the difference uh, the differences economically between something like marijuana versus a uh, cocaine or or meth I, i'm curious from a profit standpoint uh, if you're a drug dealer what is the most profitable drug to sell what drug has the biggest profit margin uh, well, for me, back when I was doing it, uh, for me, weed actually had the least. So for, for like every, like uh, let's say, $150 I'd invest, I'd get 200 back. So I'd make like $50 profit from every 150 uh, Whereas with ecstasy, I could quadruple my money over the course of one night. Quadruple? So like the, wow. Yeah, so, so the price that I'd, I'd buy it for wholesale, like per gram, I'd sell it for like uh, four times that. I Or I could sell it for four times that. You know, like sometimes I'd be generous or like sometimes I just want to sell it faster so I'd sell it a little cheaper. But uh, I think that that's just, that's, uh, that's a very consistent pattern. Because first, because weed is like such a big market, like the, the markup isn't that high because everyone smokes weed. Sure, sure. Uh, finally, let me uh, ask... Whereas, oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, whereas with, with, the, with synthetics, like... With ecstasy, like ecstasy, you can manuf- they can be manufactured locally in Europe, you know, can, in some laboratory in Holland. Doesn't have to go all the way from from South America, so that saves up on the on the logistics costs quite a, quite a bit. Very quickly, let me end with this: uh, You're Russian, and uh, there's been a lot of attention paid to this Russia-Ukraine conflict, which seems to be complicating a wide variety of uh, international concerns as it relates to the United States and Russia. One of those concerns has to do with Brittany Griner. She's the WNBA superstar who's now serving a nine-year sentence on a drug charge in Russia. The Biden administration says it wants to bring her home. There's been discussions of maybe some sort of a prisoner swap, letting some Russian prisoners go in exchange for Brittany Griner. How do you view the Brittany Griner situation, given your history and your expertise in both the drug trade and your knowledge of what's going on in Russia these days? 
Uh, so at the beginning, I, I thought like maybe she could just be unlucky because I, I didn't think it was necessarily like a like a like a, she was being kept ha- captive as a as a hostage because you know like a lot of foreigners have fallen into that predicament and Russia has very tough drug laws. Like in theory, like if you have just a small amount for yourself, then that's kind of decriminalized. It's not really a crime; it's more like something you get fined for, not really jail time. But in practice, uh, the police always just happen to have to find just the right number of drugs on you to start a serious criminal case. Uh, so I thought that she was very un- unlucky. But when she actually got sentenced to nine years and she didn't even have like a gram's worth of cannabis oil on her. So like, that's definitely like she's definitely been used as a as a political uh, bargaining chip. Mm. I mean, you know, like. I'd question the wisdom of, of taking, because uh, she admitted that, that it was hers. I, so I question the wisdom of taking uh, something like that to Russia. So maybe on her part, that wasn't the wisest decision. But like, I don't think that, you know, that making one stupid decision should be worth, you know, spending a decade of your life locked away in another country uh, for. So I definitely, I definitely feel for her. And, um, but also, this is the kind of situation that tens of thousands of, of Russians find themselves in each year. So it's kind of shining a light on, on that aspect of our justice system as well. Yeah, no, that is for sure. Uh, Nico Vorobayev, uh, people could check out the book Dope World. Nico, I hope we could talk again soon. There's a whole bunch of stuff that I want to uh, go over with you that I didn't have a chance to get to today. Let's, uh, let's chat soon. Thanks, Frank. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure, and uh, yeah, let's keep in touch. Absolutely. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. It's side of midnight with Frank Morano. song which unfortunately seems more relevant today than ever. Um, let me give you an episode from my own experience, which um, hopefully will inform your future experience. I was, over the weekend, I was logging on to the American Express website to pay my credit card bill. 
And, you know, some some weekends, if, you know, you have to pay your American Express card, generally, the plan I have, I know there are various plans, but the plan I have, you have to pay it off every month. And so there are some months where it's it gets a little close for comfort in terms of, do I have enough money in that bank account to pay off whatever my bill is? So I see there's a charge on my American Express bill for, from just a day or two before, $320. And my wife has a copy of my American Express card. She has one in her name, but it all goes to the same account, right? We all just – we charge it, and I pay it off. And it says R-R-O, you know, for Rachel O'Brien, which was her maiden name, and that's what the credit card is under. And I ask Rachel – and I recognize this vendor. And I'm not going to mention it because so far this vendor has been pretty good. Uh, but I recognize this vendor. It's a vendor that we used six or seven months ago. It involves – uh, something that you get uh, on something online, right? I don't want to say too much about it because then you'll know what it is, and I don't want to embarrass the vendor while we're in talks with them. So we purchased this item once, once, and lo and behold, I didn't realize this until this weekend. They've been charging my credit card three hundred and twenty dollars for the last six months. Lesson is, check your credit card bills more than I do. To be continued. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Um, Temple University, a distinguished college in Pennsylvania, graduated my, my, second, my favorite second cousin, Andrea. She is an attorney. She does very well. She had a great experience at Temple. I think she was, a, I think she was on the dance team at Temple as well or, the, or cheerleader or something, something along those lines. But uh, she had a good experience at Temple. She liked it. My cousin Frankie, I think, also went to Temple. And a lot of folks that I know went to Temple University and had a good experience. And it's very interesting what is going on at Temple University now. There is a student activist named Jared Goldberg. He's the head of a group called Owls for Democracy. And he has launched a petition. And so far has collected over 4,500 signatures asking the university to cancel classes on Election Day in order to spur voter participation. Here's a bit of a news item from Temple Temple University News, which is the sort of the campus news outlet. It's not just a campus newspaper anymore. It's a multimedia news outlet. Here's Temple University News, Jared Goldberg. Students across Temple's campus have been taking measures to ensure that their vote matters. 
Senior Jared Goldberg started a petition to cancel classes on Election Day in an effort to increase student voter turnout. Not only in voting, I don't want it to be a day off, I want it to be a day where we actually work with our community. That's one of the things that I care about most. Goldberg's proposal, Owls Out for Democracy, also includes plans for transportation to the polls, collaborating with local organizations, and celebratory events after Election Day. The petition has received more than 2,600 signatures from students, faculty, and prominent alumni. Students can do more than vote, but at a minimum, I just want them to vote because their voice matters. So he has this petition to cancel classes. It's gotten thousands of signatures, vast majority of which are from students, alumni, and staff. Over 100 members of the faculty have also signed on to this proposal. The goal of the proposal is to help make sure that students, many of whom are commuters, have the time in their schedules to make it to the polls. And a handful of Philadelphia colleges and universities do give at least some time off on Election Day. Both the Community College of Philadelphia and the University of the Arts have the day off this year. Drexel will close early. Temple does not typically cancel classes on Election Day. And as of now, it's not in the plans per a statement from the university that was released on Friday. Now, my question for you before I give you my take, what do you think? Not just with Temple University, but colleges and universities around the country. Should they give a day off? Should they cancel classes on Election Day so that students, faculty, staff, etc., to use the Aldamato term, should vote? What do you think? 800-848-9222. Should colleges cancel classes as thousands of students at Temple apparently think they should in order to vote? Now, Jared Goldberg says he got the idea thinking about his own busy schedule, which includes six classes, three or four shifts of work a week. He stood outside Temple's bell tower with a giant QR code to encourage other students to sign on and share the petition. And he knocked on professors' office doors to collect his signatures and support. He was out at the tower all day for two weeks straight, rain or shine. And uh, he has gotten a lot of support for this. You know, my take is this. I am all for, I want to be very clear. I like what he's talking about in terms of providing transportation to the polls, encouraging people to vote, getting involved in a campaign. I think that's all great. I think it's all wonderful. My answer, enthusiastically, this is not, you know, where we were talking about that ethical question that that stepmother posed at the top of the last hour. I think there is no gray area here at all. Colleges, universities, Temple University specifically, should absolutely 100% not cancel classes to allow people to vote. Should not happen, and here's why. Pennsylvania, much like New York and most other states right now, Pennsylvania offers early voting. So if you have class or if you have work on Election Day... Just vote early. There's nothing that stops you in this day and age from voting a week before. Vote early. If you're somebody that doesn't want to vote early, you could vote via absentee ballot. 
Pennsylvania offers no excuse absentee ballot voting. We saw that play out during the presidential election. We all remember how controversial that was. There is no reason whatsoever for any college in Pennsylvania or in New York or in almost any other state to cancel classes so people could vote. You don't need to vote. on. And, by the way, even if you have class that day, I recognize that the the schedule of a college student or a college faculty member can be pretty rigorous at times. But usually polls are open from 6 a.m. until 9 p.m. I'm not sure in Pennsylvania if it's 8 p.m. or 9 p.m., but let's assume it's 8 p.m. That's 14 hours. You're not in class for 14 hours. Let's throw in an hour for commuting both ways. You're not in class for 12 hours. You can't break away for 15 minutes to vote. So you have an opportunity to vote before. You have an opportunity to vote by mail. And you have an opportunity to vote that day uh, to expect that they should cancel classes so that you could vote. I, I just, I don't get it. it. Makes no sense to me. 800-848-9222. New York did something similar to this two years ago. New York passed a whole bunch of sweeping voter reform legislation to make it easy, maybe it was three years ago, to make it easier for people to vote. You know what has not changed? Since New York passed all these reforms to make it easier for vote for voting, you know what hasn't changed? Voter turnout. Voter turnout is still abysmal. In some cases, it's actually worse than it was before. And sometimes it's better. Like, for instance, the 2020 presidential election, uh, that had record high turnout all over the country, including in New York. The mayoral race last year in New York City had very low turnout. What does that tell you? It tells you that... The reason people vote or don't vote has nothing to do with whether or not they get the day off. There's ample opportunity to vote. It has to do with whether they're interested in the races. So in New York, um, I thought it was crazy when they changed this three or four years ago uh, because they expanded early voting in New York, which I was all for. I, I vote early and I like early voting. But they also mandated that private sector employers have to give you something like, I don't have the numbers in front of me, either three or four hours off so that you could go out and vote on Election Day. And all I was thinking at the time that they passed this, and I still think this was, why do you need both? Pick one. You have mail-in voting. um, You have early voting in person. And you have the option to vote that day. Why should employers, public and private, have to deal with three or four hours of lost productivity because you didn't want to vote earlier by mail. Now, if you want to vote on Election Day, I respect that. I have a lot of friends that and family members that prefer to vote on Election Day. Fine. So vote. You don't need the day off in order to vote. You got, you got the whole day. You could vote before work. You could vote after work. I think this is indicative of a broader problem with America's youth. And I'm not trying to pick on Jared Goldberg because I do think that this young man is very civically minded and I think this is, it's great that he wants to encourage more people to get involved. I wish all young people would follow his lead and want to get involved in electoral politics. I think that's great. But the fact that thousands of them signed this petition to get the day off when they could just simply vote early makes no sense. 
Makes no sense whatsoever. 800-848-9222. Do you think colleges and universities should offer the day off on Election Day? 800-848-9222. And then there's one other university-related new piece of news that I want to get to uh, if there's time before the $1,000 minute. Uh, we have a bunch of mics on the line. We'll get to them all. Let me begin with Mike in Lake George. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. I'm still in Karen. I'm, I'm still up playing a little poker. Uh, Wonderful. Lake George was not nice. I was up there seven weeks. I'm in Myrtle Beach for six months. No big deal. Uh, snowbird. Uh, you know what? I was going to talk about the previous uh, caller with the opioids, um, but but interesting with Temple, you know, and I agree with you 100 percent. You know, I, I know a couple of alumni, Bowles, who, who coached the Green and White Jets, a longtime Jet fan, and uh, and now he's with the uh, Buccaneers. But how about Bill Cosby, another uh, alumni? But I agree with you 100 percent, Frank. No way. You know, uh, don't think about canceling classes. You have all day, like you said, early votes. And in Pennsylvania, it, you know, it, you, you can vote. You have numerous hours to vote. And that, to me, I, I'm surprised, like you said, how many people signed that petition, students. I mean, come on, let, let's, you know, wake up and smell the coffee. Let's get real. Well, uh, and, and it leads think, me to think that I think a lot of them just signed the petition yeah. because they wanted a day off. Correct. Yeah. yeah. That, that's what I but, uh, Mike, uh, what did you want to add on the subject of drugs since you were ho- I kept you holding for all that time? Did that's you- okay. That's okay. Uh, you know, one guy's waving me over. He wants to say, we're playing five card, seven card. You know, I'll, I'll let you go. Go ahead. Good no, luck. No, no, no. No, no that, that's all right. Uh, Frank? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I was going to say, uh, I mentioned to Ken, you know, in my 68 years when I worked for the MTA, uh, you know, I could see it in their eyes. You know, some are cracked out. Uh, opioid epidemic, and that's an interesting story. I listened to the whole thing, uh, and you know what? It, it's a bumpy road. It's a bumpy road if you go down that road with, with opioids and, and, and you know uh, fentanyl and, and you know acid and uh, heroin and everything else. But uh, hey, Frank, uh, I'll let you go. You got other people on deck, and maybe one day. I'll try to ten questions. Uh, Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Good luck with the cards. 800-848-9222. I'm going to get back to your calls in a moment. There are one, two, three, four, five, six open lines. But I also wanted to bring this to your attention before we ran out of time since we're talking about colleges and universities. Uh, Really alarming. I, I find this alarming. I think many of you will as well. A new study published in University World News concludes that most colleges and universities are not prepared for the next active shooter on campus attack and thus are at a high risk of unnecessary and preventable deaths, injuries, and a huge legal liability, especially in the United States. So they, John Bonzoff is a um, really interesting guy. He is a law professor emeritus at uh, George Washington University Law School, one of the most quoted law professors that there is. And um, he wrote about this. And one of the things, the most important recommendation, they had 11 recommendations uh, for how to improve things. And the most important recommendation is the only one that I'm going to mention and one that it's been endorsed by more than a dozen safety organizations, including the Sandy Hook Advisory Commission. 
It's that, and I think this is the simplest thing in the world. And I can't imagine that this is not the case on every college campus, every high school, to be honest, as well, but certainly every college campus in America. It's that all classroom doors should be equipped with locks that can be locked from the inside so that a professor will not have to step outside to lock his classroom door while a shooter is prowling around. Um, The recommendations are based in part on the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, which killed 19 students and two teachers. The more recent shooting death of a professor at the University of Arizona and school shootings in almost a dozen countries. The statistics are frightening and very sobering. And I think this cries out for action. If you think about it, there have been nearly a thousand incidents of gunfire at schools and colleges in the last 10 years since Sandy Hook. More than 311,000 students have experienced gun violence at school since Columbine. And more than 136 school shooting incidents have occurred so far in 2022. And there were 240 last year. Why have they not implemented this very common sense change? to allow people to allow professors to lock the classroom door from the inside. Makes no sense to me. Some of the other recommendations include posting a sign in the window of each classroom, showing its room number or designation um, to first responders. That can be done at no cost at all. Other recommendations designed to protect against an active shooter include a Proper master key system, simple door open sensors of the type that homeowners have installed themselves in millions of homes, a texting system so that students in hiding can safely call for help and send information to others, and a few other things. But to me, the no-brainer is allow professors to lock the classrooms from the inside. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on either The uh, proposal by the student group to cancel classes on Election Day or the rather alarming study that shows colleges and universities still are unprepared for live active shooters. Uh, Marianne is calling from Indiana. Hello, Indiana. Marianne, hello. Hi, Frank. Hi. Uh, Hi. Uh, I was calling about the uh, university. Sure. They have... They have voting uh, places they can go there. Uh, okay, At well, the so all, all the more reason why I think it's uh, unwar- uh, unwise to cancel classes. Correct. I think I think that that you know they just got off a of fall break. They right. take fall break now. So right now they're taking. They want to take off. For election day, and half of the students, they don't even know. You know, like I don't even know they know how to register. Well, I mean, let's assume that the students that are signing this petition, they at least do know how to register. Uh, but uh, I still don't think they need to cancel classes. But maybe I'm wrong. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Mike is in Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. How you doing, Frank? I'm doing I well. I disagree with you. I think that Election Day should be a holiday because it's a very special day in our country that you have the right to vote. Second of all, some of them kids, they have to vote in their own neighborhoods, too. 
you know, you got you got judges and things like that. They might be registered in their own neighborhoods, not not where Temple is. So that's another thing. Professors all don't live by the school. It's very, very important that we have a day in which the early vote, and I think, stinks because you can stuff ballot boxes and all. Uh, the guys who took the beach at Normandy couldn't be there early and then go home early. Well, Election uh, day is a battle. I, you like uh, a couple, couple of things, Mike. One, um, I, I think it's it's really uh, it's really unfair to compare the people that uh, storm the beaches at Normandy to people that are attending Temple University. I think it's a I think it's night and day. I don't even think it's it's worthy of being mentioned in the same sentence. Two, I'm not comparing. I'm uh, not comparing, Frank. Okay, I, I, it's, it's, I, I'm identifying. All right, so I'm identifying. Okay, I'm not. All right, so two, Mike is. You mentioned that the students and the faculty members, I used to be for Election Day as a as a holiday, no work, no school, nothing, uh, because we didn't have early voting when I was growing up. And you had to have a, uh, a reason for absentee ballots. But even when I was in college, I, I didn't go away to school, I commuted. But even when I was in college, it was always considered an acceptable excuse for an absentee ballot if you were away. So if you're working as a faculty member or if you're a student who is, um, you know, at Temple or at any other college or university and you're not going to be in your county on Election Day, nothing stops you from getting a, an absentee ballot. Why is that not an acceptable alternative to the students that you're talking about? Well, because you, it, the, more, the more paper you got flying around, you can have more corruption. Go to the poll, go to your voting booth, vote and then go home and go back to university that's you know you know why they do it in november frank do you know why it's november uh well it didn't have something to do with farming yep yep because that was after the harvest right and everybody could into ta- everybody could come into town and vote there wasn't well i i i live out here so send me an absentee ballot it's a duty and when i say you know you you march to the you march to the polling booth and that's what shows the whole world what we are. Well, that's, that's the difference. Or else you're going to end up having it, okay, do it online like American Idol. It won't work that way. And you'll have more corruption. All right. So M- Mike thinks uh, we should have the day off. I disagree. Uh, I think th- years ago I would have totally in agreement with Mike. These days, with no excuse absentee balloting and early voting, I don't think there's a need to give students the day off. If there's a problem with early voting and um, absentee balloting in terms of corruption or voter fraud or anything like that, then there's a problem with voting on Election Day as well. Because in New York, the Election Day voting procedure is exactly the same as the early voting procedure. The only difference is with early voting, there's less of a line. So let's fix those problems if they exist not just replicate those same problems on Election Day and force colleges to give students the day off or force employers to give their employees the day off. Um, I think if there's a problem with voter fraud, let's figure it out. Let's, let's get to the bottom of it. But I don't think it's solved by giving people the day off on Election Day. Makes no sense to me. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is apparently only a subject that Mikes are interested in. So we had Mike in Lake George, Mike in Pennsylvania, and now Mike in Cincinnati. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. Thank you very much. And that uh, that farming thing that 
That doesn't apply anymore. These kids can grow pot all year long. They don't. Thank have to goodness. Thank goodness. Yes. <laughs> but uh, but no, you're exactly right as as far as uh, that that kid who's interested in uh, having the day off and all that. He wouldn't be doing that if he was over at his dad's uh, shop where they're all conservative, and uh, he wouldn't be over there trying to get their day off. I can guarantee you that. It's all it's self-interest. It's not it's not interest in civil duties or any of that stuff. He is trying to get as many like-minded people to the poll as any of the rest of us would, and it's all a bunch of crap. You're right as far as the absentee voting. Uh, how many kids at Temple? Uh, they're they're not going to be voting unless they vote absentee because they're from out of town. So uh, uh, it's a ruse. Well, Mike, thank you. And again, I don't want to sound like I'm um, totally dismissive of what these students are going to, uh, you know, are going for. I'm all for civic participation. I'm all for encouraging it on college campuses and in high school. I actually believe, and my friend Mike Sambluskis, who's actually run for Congress this year against Gerald Nadler and the sex-positive candidate that shot his own pornographic film, he has convinced me, and I've come to believe this, that you should not be able to graduate from high school without volunteering on at least one political campaign. doesn't matter what the campaign is or uh, what the what the office that you're running for is, a, but be, it would really be a, an incredible educational experience for people to be mandated to volunteer at least on one political campaign, right? I, I believe that we should do whatever we can to foster civic engagement. I try to do that with people on the radio, and I try to foster that civic engagement with people in my own life. You know what I gave to all of my younger siblings when they became 18? I handed them each a voter registration form, right? But I I don't think the only way to do that is by giving students the day off. To me, it's wasteful. It's superfluous. And in the era of early voting, it makes no sense. Jack is in New Jersey. Hello, Jack. Frank, listen, everything the Democrats do is a con. To take the day off what? to get these But how do you know this bus. guy's a Democrat, though? Trust me, he's a Democrat. Okay. Okay? I can't, I, can't argue, I can't argue with the trust me, Jack. Thank you. Tommy, two times, is in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, when I was... Morning. Um, when I was first... Um, Started voting when I was 18 in high school. I remember I also was working. They gave us half a day on on um, on uh, voting day. You know? So I think that I think we're going to go to the middle on this one. I'm going to take the middle on this one. Let's give a half a day for people to vote. But I do like the idea. I, I'm not a big fan of uh, you know um, absentee ballots. But when I was in the military, I had to do it. So I kind of like it in a way, but. I'm so worried about the uh, problems that we've been having with ballot stuffing and, and so forth over COVID. So I think we need to have some kind of monitoring system for something like that. Well, but, but what, I about, agree with you. What, what about early in-person voting, though? I, you know, I, I haven't done it yet, and this is going to be my first year that I'm going to do it, early voting. And I'll have a better opinion after I do it. How does that sound? Yeah, fair <laughs> enough, Tommy. Uh, thank you yeah. very much. 800-848-9222. Um, you know, whatever. Different strokes for different folks. I wouldn't, you know, again, if I was in school, I might want the day off 
So I might sign the petition if I was in school at the time. But you think about it. These students and their families are paying a lot of money to be educated, right? And I I understand if we're talking about giving students the day off or break from classes for a holiday, like Christmas or Rosh Hashanah or Eid al-Fadir or uh, Diwali, whatever the case may be. But uh, to give them the day off to vote when they've got 14 hours to vote that day and they can vote by absentee ballot by mail and they can vote in person early, it just strikes me as wasteful and useless and it sets a dangerous precedent for the next person that wants a day off for something. Because in my view, the rationale for a day off here is a little lacking. Uh, Matt Blaze, do you have, want to weigh in? You've, I feel like you want to say something, but you don't want to say something. You always got that look on well, your face. The only thing I'm thinking, Frank, is how are they going to have their election day pub crawl if they don't have the day off? Well, that's fair. That's fair. And and I think that might be kind of what this is that's exactly about what for it some is. people. Come on. If you're going to vote, if you want to vote, you're going to vote. Like you said, you have 14 hours on vote, on election day to vote. Right. So if you want to, you'll find a way to do it. Right. Especially, and again, uh, some people have brought up the fact if people are going to a school that they don't live in that near the school and they want to vote in their own home state or their own home district, you get an absentee ballot, as people have been doing for 100 years, if not more. All right. Uh, we're going to give a $1,000 away. At least we're going to try to. If you are the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, you can uh, answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you could do that, then uh, you will be $1,000 richer. As simple as that. So go ahead and call right now. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. 
Uh, if you're new to this show, every morning right around this time, we give somebody an opportunity to win some money uh, as part of a contest to see if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. It's all part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Oh, yes, that's right. And uh, today's contestant is a regular listener and caller to our program, also a fan favorite. It is not. Oh, wait. This, so we have a guy named Joe from Ronkonkoma that listens and calls in almost nightly. And yet, he is not the Joe from Ronkonkoma that is calling in for this contest. We have a second Joe from Ronkonkoma. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank, you're right. Number two here. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I love it. All right. Uh, it's, I don't like to be called number two, but... Well, yeah. hey, you, you got to call more often, it. and then you, maybe you'll make your way up to number one, Joe, right? <laughs> there um, you go. <laughs> Joe, are you familiar with this contest? I am. Okay. Um, so I'm going to... I don't need to read the rules or anything like that to you. You're all set. No. Okay. Yeah, we're good. Great. All right. So well, let's get started if you're ready. Name a type of pasta. Fusilli. What date is Halloween? October 31st. What baseball team plays in Atlanta? Braves. What former New York governor recently announced that he's going to be hosting a podcast? Cuomo. What state is Baltimore in? Maryland. How many sides does a nonagon have? Nine. In Celsius, what degree does water boil? Uh, 32? Uh, no, I'm sorry. It's, uh, it's 100 uh, at Celsius. It's, uh, I believe it, it um, so it's, uh, let me double check that, but, uh, I, because you were doing really well there. Um, but, uh, no, yeah, the boiling point of water is in, uh, indeed 100 degrees. See, the reason Celsius is is simple is zero degrees is freezing, 100 degrees is boiling. But you did very well. You made it up to question seven. Uh, Joe, I want to put you on hold and give Kenneth your information. We're going to send you something nice, okay? All right. Thanks, Frank. Hey, thanks Good for show, playing. Man. Thank uh, you. Hey, I appreciate you listening and appreciate you participating. Thank you. Joe was doing really well there. Good pace. Hey, he was Joe. He was there. I, he was there. I thought we That's were giving away $1,000. Is it? Yeah, because the first thing you think of, we, we, we deal with Fahrenheit. And I know 212 is the boiling point for Fahrenheit. See, I feel like that's uh, more difficult than, um, than 100, right? Because 212 is a number that you have to kind of remember. I feel like 100... You could kind of pull it out, you know, out of nowhere and say, oh, 100, right? Oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, the metric system is better. Yeah. But well, we're so used to the English system that we don't. Is Celsius technically part of the metric system? That I don't know. All right. Well, but so then what are you bringing up the metric Because system? the metric system is the same thing. It's built like on 10. Right, 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 right. Fair. So what what he was thinking, 32 degrees is, the, freezing. is the freezing point in Fahrenheit. Right. So, yeah, okay. So well, uh, there you go. Now you know. Everybody has learned uh, the the situation in terms of the boiling point of water. You know what today is? This is a day that Matt Blaze is not going to like, or Alex Barnard. I don't think 
Today is National No Beard Day. Today is a day where uh, Kenneth and I will have our way. We get to go all over the place today celebrating not having a beard. Also, uh, National Chocolate Cupcake Day. I have to be honest. I've never been a chocolate person. I can eat. I can eat chocolate. Um, Looks like a chocolate egg cream might be good. But as far as chocolate cakes, chocolate cupcakes, never been my thing. Never been my thing. Uh, Today is also the birthday of legendary Hall of Fame football coach Mike Ditka, 83 years old. Uh, Happy birthday to Mike Ditka. And uh, TV writer and producer Chuck Lorre is 70 years old today. Boxer Tommy Hitman Hearns, 64 years old today. And, um, you know, it was Tommy Hitman Hearns who was actually the inspiration for Bret Hart's nickname of Bret the Hitman Hart. That's a fact. I read that in Bret Hart's book, which has still not been returned to me by Ray Ramundi, who used to work here and hasn't worked here for a year and had my book for about four or five months before he left here. And sure enough, he's had my book for almost two years. And uh, we're going to try and track him down, try and get that book back. And uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme's birthday today as well. He is 62 years years old. You know what's fun? Well, it's fun for me. I'm not sure if it's fun for any of the other people that I'm about to mention. Is I was at a 40th birthday party on Saturday. It's for my neighbor across the street, John Charles. It's his first name, John Charles. And we go to this party, and his a bunch, a couple of people spoke, but the room it was in a catering hall, nice place, great food, great people, good music. But the room had such poor acoustics. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you can't hear anything? In even. And there was a microphone. There was a microphone and a PA system. But the acoustics in this room were so poor that you couldn't make out what anybody was saying. So when John Charles's mother was speaking, and she's my neighbor also. It's a very, very communal block we have, right? So John Charles lives across the street from his mother. So his mom lives next door to me. John Charles lives across, and across the street from me. So his mother gives a few remarks. And I can't understand a word she was saying. It was like Charlie Brown. It was, I just want to say, we really appreciate everybody being here. You love everybody. It was that kind of a situation. And it's not her fault. She was enunciating very clearly. But the acoustics were just not in anybody's favor. So no one at our table could understand what his mom was saying. Lo and behold, one of the other people at our table is our other neighbor, Tara. We ended up at a neighbor table, right? So it turns out Tara's birthday is the same day as John Charles's birthday today. So, <laughs> And I'm sorry, I can't help myself. I have a devilish streak to me. If this is what you describe as devilish, I'm not dealing drugs like Nico is or anything like that. But there's an, it was warm in this room, too. So I went outside with my wife to get a little fresh air. There's a little balcony area. And so that we can hear what one another is saying. Because the acoustics in this room were, very, were not conducive to speaking. So when my wife and I went out onto this balcony, 
a few of the other people from our table followed us out there. We're trendsetters. And so we're talking and everything. And I knew that it was Tara's birthday the same day as John Charles, which is today. So I say to her, hey, did you hear Deborah give you that nice shout out in her remarks for your birthday and give you a nice shout out for your birthday? And she says, no, you're kidding. I I didn't hear that at all. I, I mean, it was I couldn't make out what she was saying. I have to go thank her. And so Tara was over the moon that she had uh, gotten a special birthday shout-out in the mother of the birthday boy's remarks. Only then did my wife inform her that I was busting her chops. She didn't want her to go up to Deborah and thank her for actually giving her a birthday shout-out. But I thought that would have been really funny if she did. Lo and behold, we'll never know how funny it would have been because my wife stopped it from occurring. But uh, a good laugh was had by the four of us in our little circle there outside. So happy birthday to John Charles. Happy birthday to Tara. Happy birthday to my friend Vic Christopher, who's celebrating his birthday today. So happy birthday to everybody involved. Now, um, what else do I have for you? Hey, um, this is also, um, so let me tell you what's coming up tomorrow. A couple of things. One is John Stossel is going to be here tomorrow. John Stossel had this terrific column in the New York Post on Saturday all about what I'm going through. And what, what do I mean, what am I, what am I going through? I'm not dealing with discrimination on days that are not national no beard day. No. I am um, being suppressed by the social media company. And uh, that's why I really need you to follow me on social media. Uh, be, I'm on Twitter at Frank Morano. Please follow me. Please retweet me. And I'm on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And John Stossel's whole column on Saturday is about how most of his followers aren't seeing his posts on social media. So that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. Also, I'm working on uh, in, in the New York area, and I'm sure this is true in areas outside of New York as well. In the New York area, there's a big debate about yeshiva education and whether or not the young boys that attend yeshivas are getting an adequate education. The New York Times did a big series on this, and they've been criticized from some in the Orthodox Jewish community. So tomorrow, we are bringing back Julie Globus, who's an attorney who has been very outspoken about the lack of education going on in yeshivas. So I'm hoping that we are going to be able to have a debate tomorrow with in person with somebody representing the pro-yeshiva side and somebody representing the yeshivas should be doing a better job educating school uh, students side. It's going to be a fascinating discussion and um, if we don't have somebody on the pro-Yeshiva side, which I'm working on, um, then we'll invite callers to challenge Julie on some of the things that she's saying. I uh, haven't had Julie on in a while because, I'll be honest, the last time she was on, I guess it was almost two years ago, several, so many of the people that called in to challenge her said such vile things and such hateful things, quite frankly. That uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to do that kind of a thing. I, I like to keep things 
fun. I like to keep things above board. I like to keep things interesting. Keep everything positive. Even when people disagree, uh, disagree in a in a civil manner. But I mean, we we had a very reasonable discussion. One caller called in last time, called her Hitler. I mean, it was really just reprehensible. So well, hopefully uh, tomorrow will be a better situation in that regard. And because we had three uh, three guests today, all of whom were great, but uh, because we had three guests, I didn't have an opportunity to go through the mail. And uh, we have some doozies in terms of the mail this week. So we're going to go through that uh, tomorrow in all likelihood. You can also join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. I don't know why I bother saying this anymore because people continue to post in there about things that are not related to the show. But if you would like to comment on anything related to the show, please feel free to do so. Just search Morano Radio uh, fans and haters. And by the way, speaking of the manner in which I just cupped my hands in order to amplify the sound, a couple of people recently have asked me what became of the megaphone that I used to use in studio. And uh, I I did find that. That was in my car. And what happened was I thought the batteries went out. And then I kept it in my trunk, and I had kept intending to change the batteries. So when I gave up my car, and now that I'm sharing a car with my wife, I changed the batteries finally because it was a sort of a reminder to do this. And the changing of the batteries did nothing. So I think the megaphone itself is no longer functional. So I'm working on getting a new megaphone, and so we won't have to. We're also working on developing, uh, bringing back the harmonizer here, which will uh, bring back a wide variety, the full spectrum of sounds that uh, that you could come to expect depending on the moment. But we're working on that, the, uh, the, the, those of you that have asked. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a couple of minutes. 800-848-9222. If you're new to the show, that means you get to comment on anything you want for, yes, 15 seconds. 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Somewhere out there on the other side of me, 
love this version of the song. This is The Other Side of Midnight by Stevie G and the Tamagotchis. You can get it on uh, iTunes for $1, I believe. And uh, we're trying to make it into the biggest song of all time. I think it'd be great publicity for this show if it just becomes a massive bestseller. Hey, you know, one story that I didn't have the opportunity to speak to because, uh, again, we just had so much going on with, uh, with three great guests. And if you missed any portion of the show, including my discussions with uh, Bill Burns, Andrew Yang, and uh, uh, Nico, you can make sure to listen to the podcast. Just search The Other Side of Midnight on any podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever, and uh, hit the subscribe button. And if you do that, each and every morning you'll get the podcast's Download it to your phone. You can listen to the show in its entirety. Now, let's say you don't want the whole show. Let's say you just wanted to hear the interviews. Then the best thing for you to do is search Frank Morano Interviews and More through any podcast app, and you'll be able to get the uh, the podcasts downloaded to your phone of just the interviews if you don't have time to listen to all four hours of uh, the radio show. Oh, what I wanted to mention is uh, what I find a a pretty – entertaining story involving James Dolan, the owner of the New York Knickerbockers. And on the one hand, I think this is very petty. On the other hand, I can't help but appreciate this, okay? So there were some lawyers that had Knicks season tickets, And now they can't get into Madison Square Garden. Nearly 60 lawyers at the commercial law and government relations firm of Davidoff, Hutcher, and Citron have been banned from Rangers and Knicks games because their clients are suing Madison Square Garden. According to these lawyers, they were told that their tickets were no longer valid, September 7th, that was two weeks after they filed a lawsuit against Madison Square Garden on behalf of ticket resellers. The Lights Out notice declared the historic arena was banning the firm's attorneys from entering venues owned and operated by MSG. That's according to a uh, Manhattan State Supreme Court lawsuit from Thursday. It came as a surprise to most of the firm's teams who aren't involved in the legal brawl. On the one and we've had Sid Davidoff, who's the named partner in in this firm here. Davidoff Hutcher and or Davidoff Hutcher and Citron. On the one hand, I feel bad for the lawyers that have nothing to do with this lawsuit and all they want to do is go to a Nick game occasionally, go to a hockey game, bring their clients to it. On the other hand, you know, I do feel I do understand where the Dolans are coming from. Okay, these guys are suing you, but they still expect to be given a warm welcome when they come to Madison Square Garden? No, no. If someone's suing me, I wouldn't invite them to come watch this radio show. I realize it's not a perfect metaphor, but still. Again, it's a little petty, but there's got to be some ramifications for taking on a client that's suing your favorite basketball team, right? All right. Uh, without further ado, it's time for... The 
other side of midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Ken in New Rochelle. E. Frank in Astoria. Yes, uh, you got to be kidding with congestion pricing, the police pension funds, and the infrastructure falling apart that our mayor, Eric Adams, is doing a very good job to improve the city and the quality of life. Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. The woman in the New York Times article, she was the mother, the stepmother, the ex-wife, and the gumad. She has more titles than the Queen of England. William in Westchester. Will somebody please tell Lee Zeldin that the name of the governor is Crooked Kathy? Jimmy in Manhattan. Eugene in Manhattan. The person you're going to call for your debate would be Rabbi Simon Jacobson. He'd be really good on your show. He's located in Brooklyn, Rabbi Simon Jacobson. Thank you. Uh, David in the Bronx. I'm calling on Britney Spears' dad to apply for conservatorship of Kanye West before he tries to purchase an Oopaloopa farm. <laughs> Gary on Staten Island. Tulsi Gabbard, right on. Tucker Carlson, right on. Trump saying peace in Ukraine now, before World War III, right on. Elon Musk saying the same thing, right on. I notice. I feel like I should have gotten a right on there as well, Gary. Nobody talks about peace in Ukraine more than me. But uh, I can't disagree with uh, anything Gary said there, which always makes me nervous. Whenever I find myself agreeing with Gary, I start to think, all right, what am I doing wrong? All right, that slams the lid on things for today. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, tomorrow we are scheduled to be joined by John Stossel and Julie Globus, hopefully a yeshiva debate as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll be back. Email me, frank.moreno at wabcradio.com. Find us on Twitter at Frank Moreno. Frank Moreno, good day. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.